Part two of my conversation with John Benton will start after a quick message from our sponsor. I, like I told you, I, I grew up and had you know some diverse and fun offs with uh, family and and growing up in the situation I was in. But uh, I I did learn a trade. And well, did you did you think through high school like you had college aspirations and I want to do this? Well, okay, so here, so I got my act together and actually was able to get back in AP classes, advanced placement courses, and my grade point average wasn't great, but I was starting to excel again. I felt like I was starting to become good, you know, something good again, and uh, I took the pre-sat and I scored high, like really high, so I was pretty happy about that, Good. and I thought I would maybe go to college. Um but I was living by myself. I left home when I was 16. Okay. Um, and I worked at a hardware store. And I had my own little apartment. And I, I did not drop out of school. I didn't miss a day of school. Like all that stupid, like, senior ditch day and right. shit like Would that. Would you I, work after school and work on the weekends? I worked. I worked. Uh, well, I had a couple different jobs. But the, the ones that kept me going was the hardware store. And I also worked at a dairy over in Huntington okay. Park. Yeah. So I, I just worked. I worked. I found jobs. I did side jobs. I just worked. Whatever but, you could to pay the rent. Yeah, yeah. Put food and, on. And, and, and take care of my car. You know, I, I had my little Volkswagen I, that I, uh, I was always working on. And that was like a survival thing. It wasn't – I had to have my car, you know. But uh, I, uh, I really did want to go to college at a higher level. And um, I had joined the debate team at Southgate High. Really? Yeah, Mrs. Carter was the <laughs> was the teacher, and and uh, it's funny how we always remember the teachers that made a difference. Well, she was awesome. She was awesome. Um, and uh, God bless her. I, I think she she's had some health pro- uh, health problems lately. She may have passed. I I don't know, but anyway, she was just a fabulous lady. And uh, first day we sat down. And there were probably 25 people in the room. And she described a scenario where you're in a bunker and your job is to push the button when you're commanded to push the button. And uh, you get a, a transmission that's kind of garbled. But it's, you, you think you may have heard that rockets are imminent heading towards the United States. But you're not 100% sure. But it's, you know, you heard it and you've been trained. Like, if, and she goes, you know, I just want to see where you guys are at. Like, do you push the button or do you wait for something else? Because you only have X amount of time. Right. And who would push the button? Yeah, that's a difficult scenario. Oh, the whole class raised their hand except for me. Because it was during the... So you, you chose not to push the button? Yeah. Okay. I chose not. And so she says, Wow. Okay, well, all you guys are hawks, and you, you're the dove. I'm like, what? She goes, that's this semester, hawks, doves. You're going to debate against all of them. She goes, these are the rules I live by, and we're going to live by it. So I I had to debate the whole rest of the class on different topics. And the fun thing about debate class is that you have to choose – you don't choose your side sometimes. Right. It's almost like a, an attorney-like perspective. Mm-hmm. Your client may be guilty of sin, 
but you work within the rules and the law, and you do your best to defend this person, right? Right. So you do the same thing with a, a topic. And I ended up uh, competing for, and doing very well, and I, I uh, was given the, uh, the honor of representing uh, LA Unified at this thing, a symposium called the University of Young Americans, where we got to do a debate on something we really believed in, and it was on CBS News. We got it was downtown, and that event took place the day after I left home. Wow! I was living in my car. That was the first night I, I slept. I went to the University of Young Americans uh, platform symposium in the clothes I had worn the day before, and I pulled it off, but. You know, I've been telling you all these stories, but, and I'm sharing at this level because I, you know, right now it's a pretty challenging time. And you have to choose whether to give up or stay in the fight. Right, absolutely. And I don't know if I'm hard headed or stupid. I was going to say, what kept you in the fight? Um, because I didn't feel like everything was really that bad. Like, if if you are. If you're like being lowered into liquid metal, <laughs> you're done. But you can you can cry, piss your pants, or you can laugh. I, I'm usually the guy's gonna laugh. Okay, I, I just like oh man, because there's been a couple times when I've been really broken, and I, I a lot of times I got to explain to you why I laugh. Like you laugh at somebody falling downstairs because it's oh my god, I laugh at myself that way. That's your reaction. I still do. Brenda, my wife, would, because I'll, I'll like giggle to myself, like, oh shit, you know. And I'll be looking at like, like my finger because it's almost been <laughs> amputated and it's covered, you know, it's all sewed back together. And it just makes me laugh. And I think what it is is like, shit, I'm still here. I'm still here. This is great. Because I, I know it's not going to last forever. Right. But while it's happening, In I'm. In the moment, it's funnier now. But getting back to the, the topic, I, you know, I. I uh, I loved my little car. It was everything. And I did live in that car for a while. And then I, I stayed with some friends a little bit. And then I was able to get my apartment. And uh, towards the end of high school, um, I got a job working at Far West Plastics Machinery on Washington Boulevard. 5001 Washington Boulevard, somewhere off Atlantic there. And uh, my mom, God bless her, she was looking for better jobs for me, like a job, not like three or four jobs, like doing the Jamaican hustle. Right. I was, she was worried about me, like her boy, right? So she saw this ad in the paper. She gave me the ad. I remember looking at it. She tore it out, like cut it, cut it out. And she says, call this man, his name, Larry Miller. And uh, she's already talked to him. He sounds like a nice man, and he needs you. <laughs> Bombs. So, mind you, when I was 17, 18, I looked like I was 12. I, I was very young looking, because that's just the way I was put together. And uh, so the ad said, looking for skilled mechanic with electrical background. And I'm in high school, for Christ's sake. I, I haven't quite quite graduated yet but I, I went down 
I, and I walked in and I, there's a office lady there, like, you know, receptionist. Mm -hmm. And she says, can I, and she looked, she was so funny. She's like, can I help you? And I said, I'm here Lost for the, boy. I'm here for the position. She's like, what? Like totally like you're in the wrong place. So I said, no, no, my, my name's John. I, I, this is the ad. My mom called. I just, I'm trying to like my mom called. She talked right. to this man, Larry, Larry Miller. She's like, oh, okay, hold on. And so I'm just sitting there and then he comes walking out and he goes, Christ almighty, how old are you? <laughs> and I told him. I'm 17, sir. Yeah. So he says, he goes, uh, come here, just come here. And we, we, he, we don't even go in his office. He says, follow me. So we, we go out back and it's, it's a machinery company used new and used injection molding equipment and things related to injection molding. Okay. And, but some of the things I'm familiar with, I'm looking at, Oh, I see there's a motor there. There's a control, whatever. That's a compressor, whatever. And, And so he's like, young man, I talked to your mom and, you know, I got to tell you, she thinks you're like the bee's knees, just so you know. But do you really know how to work on this? I go, what do you want me to do? He goes, I need, okay, come with me. And we walk over and there's, I didn't know what it was at the time, but it was a desiccant dryer. It's this machine that air, compressed air flows through it and it dehydrates it. Okay. So it doesn't mess up the equipment and the, and the processes it's used for. The air has to be controlled and dried, not a lot of moisture in it, stuff like that. So... I'm standing there, and I'm just looking at it. It's just a bunch of metal and nuts and bolts. And there's nothing scaring me yet. I'm just looking at it. He says, look, this is a used piece of equipment. I need this disassembled. I need it painted. I need to make sure the motors are turning the right direction. I need you to hook it up and test it. Like, make sure everything's running. Functional, sure. But, no, I know you don't know what it is. I said, no, I don't. He goes, but I just, I can show you some stuff. And if you can do this, you got the job. But I really have my doubts. I said, well, I said, I don't, I'm pretty sure I can make this go. He says, tell you what, um, you can start this weekend. What's the earliest you can get here? I said, I'll, I'll come here at five, six in the morning. He says, oh, no, 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 no. Like, can you get here by eight or so? I thought, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Shit, I can do that easy, you know? So I got there. He was there. He always wore a shirt and a tie, no matter how dirty shit was. It was hilarious. And he would, like, throw his tie over his shoulder and roll up his sleeves. He said, all right, right. listen to me. And, and, he was, and I'd say, okay, and I would do it. He'd come back out. He's like, oh, all right. All right, well, can you, can you use a, a, a – can you paint? I'm like, yeah, I can paint. And I got the paint, mixed a little bit thinner with it because a little bit thick, spray the shit out of this John Deere green, you know, all over the goddamn thing. And, right glue gaskets back on and put all the covers back on and you know it's it has an arrow for rotation and three phase motors you can you know bump them and see which way to switch direct i knew all that already from doing electrical work so i i did it there was no faking it till i made it i actually just followed his instructions listened to what he said right i never said i know oh yeah oh no i got i would listen to what he told me i wouldn't say a word you know Focused in it. Everything he said took it all in. Yeah, because... It's I, a good trait to have. No, I'm just saying, there was a lot of times, like, I, training guys over the years, I've trained a lot of men and worked with a lot of people, and one of my big pet peeves is when somebody goes, I know, I know, I know. Hmm. That's such a defensive bullshit deal. Yeah. And I'm telling you, that's a big mistake. When, when somebody's trying to give you something, you better be present. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you have to 
interact by voicing some stupid comment or reaction. Just listen and and then, you know, just you got to communicate. But I'm just saying don't – the bravado is not necessary. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Larry gave me so much. And uh, he uh, – I stayed there till I graduated from high school. He came to my graduation. Wow. He gave me 100 bucks. Um, and uh, uh, mom and dad gave me a Norelco razor. <laughs> we went to Taco Bell. I mean, it was fine you know, dining. You, oh, yeah. you had the whole wheel. It was, it was awesome. Um, so, you know, I, Larry knew that he wasn't part of the family, but he came up, he gave me the envelope and wrote something. I can't remember what it was. I was like, congratulations, very proud of you. And it's a hundred bucks. It's a I lot mean, of money. That's like a thousand dollars back then. I was like, holy shit, that's a hundred bucks. And it, I don't have to save it. It's all at one time. I'll get this hundred bucks. Right. And, uh, yeah, because what was your hour, hourly wage back then? A dollar. Eighty-five. So hundred bucks was serious coin. Dollar eighty-five, or was it more than that by then? No, no, it was more than. It's, that was at the hardware store. I always remember the hardware store, but about a buck eighty-five. But it was a couple bucks, you right. know, two but three bucks. Hundred bucks was a ton of money. So, I, uh, yeah, because my rent. I lived in a little apartment on uh, Otis and Tanaya, in Southgate, and my rent was, one sixty-five a month. $165. And I negotiated that with the two ladies that owned the place. Because <laughs> I think they wanted like 185 I said, look, I only make this much. And if I do that, I won't have enough money to like pay the... Eat. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was there plenty of times. I was so skinny back then. It's hilarious. But um, went throughout... But Larry, before he left the campus, because the ceremony was there at Southgate mm-hmm. High, um, he... Uh, he uh, said, hey, you can stay on. F- you go full-time if you want, like full-time. I'm like, oh, thank you. And I was so happy. That was like the biggest part of the whole day for me. I was like, oh, my God, I have a real job. Full-time job. Full-time job, instantly. So I'm thinking, I'm just going to make some good money, forget about school. Nope. Larry sat me down. I went back like my first day, like on a Monday. I'm, mm-hmm. And she's like, all right. Um, you can do your 40 hours a week, but you're going to go to school at night. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I, 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 okay, yeah, but I, I can do this. I can do this job. He's like, no, you're not listening to me. My good friend, Professor Giannone, and that's what you're going to call him, he is the welding and metallurgy professor at Cerritos College in Cerritos. He goes, I already called him. You're going to go to school. You're going to drive your ass over to Cerritos, and he's going to tell you which classes to take. Go meet him, and you do what you got to do. But listen to what he says, and just go over and sign up for everything. I'll pay for it. So I, here I am, fresh out of high school. I can kind of weld. Now, I could weld. I could gas weld and stuff right. and paint and do electrical stuff. But he's no, no, you need to understand what you're doing. Right. I don't care that you can do it. I want you to understand the purpose and the reason for yeah. So, I'm 18. I'm studying metallurgy, mechanical drawing, uh, welding from day one. This stuff I already thought I knew. I had to start over again, unlearn some bad habits. I took it very seriously. Uh, studied all the welding uh, disciplines. 
learned about metal, how it's made, how it's affected by heat, cold, uh, interaction with other metals. Uh, I, I learned a lot, and I was young. And when you're young, it's I'm I was personally I felt like I was so powerful then because things just kind of happened. I I would work and just do stuff so quick and just effortlessly, you know. <laughs> and and so I did that, and and at the same time, I took other classes because I thought, well, maybe I can get a a degree. Sure. I got an AA, which I never did. But I studied cinematography. I studied psychology and sociology and took all these other classes. And it was, it was awesome. I really, really enjoyed myself. And, uh, and, uh, at this time, do you still have a car bug? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Very much so. And, uh, I had my jalopy little Volkswagens and stuff. I, I lost the alpha. It's a long story. The, the, uh, Camaro I got later on after the debacle with the anyways it, it, I just I kept moving forward with cars but at the same time I had Larry Miller give me like a very wide berth so like to learn and, and achieve like his thing was be on time you know don't fuck around so mm-hmm. and I honored that I mean I was never late and I would work as long as he would let me work. And when I wanted to work on cars, he would let me work on car, my car there. At the shop. Yeah. So I welded, I started welding my car back, my, you know, cause the pans were all worn out and, and you know, I had access to equipment. You know, I do whatever I want. Oh shit, I want to make this part. So I started doing stuff like that. Not even realizing that could be a vocation later on. Right. For me, that was like, this is a hobby. Your job is what you do to make a living. This is a hobby. Because I had been, that had been drilled into my head early on, like, you know, don't you have something to do? Those stupid cars, you know? So uh, I kept kept on learning and growing in that field. Um, and I just make, started to make good money. And I had an opportunity to buy a Camaro, the 68 Camaro. Um, and it was, that was a machine, you know, it, much heavier, not as nimble, but then, oh, V8s. These flat fours are fun, but this V8, you know, and the alpha motors, I got to tell you, the little alpha motors are badass. They're, they're pretty robust inside, but the V8s, oh my God, a small block Chevy. When I started playing with those. Beast. Well, you know, shit, on a good day with the, the little Volkswagens and the alpha, you know, 120 horsepower. Wow, man, I, it's incredible, right? The first time you get in a small block that makes 450, 500 horsepower, which is nothing now. I mean, you, right? I mean, uh, not, not, I'm not going to say that it's not nothing. But with with computers and stuff, you can really dial stuff in right. and, and uh, keep detonation and, and uh, heat under control. But I, I, um, I fell in love with the uh, Chevy small block. That that's an incredible little beast, and you can do anyway. So I got into that and street racing, having fun with that. But uh, I stayed in the trades. Like I, it, Larry Miller, one day he came to me and he says, you can't work here anymore. Why? Because he said, I've outgrown the shop. He, I thought I had it made. I'm making enough money. I'm paying my bills. I, got, I can just go out and buy whatever pistons I want and build. You know, I, I, I was, but I didn't have a wife. I didn't have kids. You know, none How old of, are you at this point? Uh, probably by then I was uh, like 19. 
Okay, so it's been two 20, years. I was two, probably two 20, three years. Yeah, and so uh, and he just wanted you to move on and get broader. Yeah, he said that uh, there's he was John. There's a whole world out there, and he goes, "You're really good at this." He goes, "You're a natural," and he goes, "I, I'll find another one of you. It might not be you. It might not be your age, but I'll I'll find another guy." But you can make a lot of money. He told me that. You can make a lot of money. And uh, Does he direct you in a direction or did he just cut yeah, you loose? Yeah, you know, he got me a job at a place called, uh, uh, what was it called? Philam, Filipino American Plastics, which was a company that bought equipment from us. Because in a very short period, like within a year and a half, two years, I was doing service calls. So he would like go over to this plant. They said that they're... Uh, the extruders messed up and just go over there and fix it. So, you know, I'd go over there and sometimes I'd be in the wee hours in the morning, like on a third shift, the plant would shut down right. and I'd cruise over there with my tools and, and I'd just fix shit and he'd get so tickled and the people in the plant, I'd show up and they're like, I, I look at it now. Like I, I think back, like what were they thinking? Because this little snotty kid just coming in is going to work on this machine and I would fix the machine and go home. And, so I, uh, I kind of, I, I worked at Filipino American Plastics and then I had my first encounter with a super wealthy person that treated me really poorly. Like I'd never been not rewarded for doing the right thing. I, I felt so not like prideful, but I'd never encountered. What was the job? Um, the factory I was working for, we, one of the things we made were cassettes for, uh, Columbia music. Okay. We made cassettes and cassettes are made out of plastic mm -hmm. with the magnetic tape inside. Right. And we got this bitchin' state of the art cassette making machine. I mean, everything you need to make a cassette to record music, a little, little, little plastic cassette. Right. It, there was all this stuff on the outside and it all filtered into this machine and out the other side came cassettes. <laughs> okay. And then those cassettes would go to wherever they make, put the music on mm -hmm. and print like Columbia records. Right. And they would say, Label you know, ELO, right. blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, and then you, they put it in a little jacket. Excuse me. It was your idea to go to Wahoo's. Just saying. <laughs> um, so it was, it was really cool. I was super excited about it. Well, one of the other things Larry did for me was not only did I go to Cerritos to study um, welding metallurgy and, and uh, industrial arts and such, he also sent me to Clippard Pneumatic, uh, Paul Monroe Hydraulics Academy. Um, I went to Gould Moldicon School. I went to Ellen Bradley School. I, I, I'm young and I'm stupid. I don't realize that this is supposed to be maybe uh, take years and years to do. I'm just going to these classes, and I had nothing else to do. That I, was it. This was your life. I, I didn't have the kind of girlfriends that were, like, steady. I had fallen in love with a couple of girls, but they were, like, really mean to me <laughs> and didn't understand me at all. You know, it's just funny because uh, sure. uh, if you have a needy person in your life, male, female, lover, not a lover, whatever, just friends, they will drag you down so hard if you let them. Yep. So you got to—and like we— Earlier, I was telling, I try to identify people and try not to get sucked into their rabbit hole, some, if it's possible. <laughs> but I also very helpful to people. Right. But the point I was going to make is that by the time I was 23, I had a really, like, incredible skill set. And 
I uh, took a break for a while, and I worked full time at the hardware store that I used to work at. What drew you back there? Because I wanted to focus more on learning a few things. Okay. So I took a little break, not long, like maybe three semesters, and then I got headhunted out of the hardware store. But there was a, a gentleman named Glenn Sawyer who used to come to the hardware store to buy stuff for the factory that he was a manager of. And that was uh, Manchester Tank and Equipment. They okay. make pressure vessels, air tanks, propane tanks. And uh, one day he came in. He says, hey, uh, why are you working here? I said, oh, no, I'm, I'm going to school. And he goes, you know what? Hey, how, how much you making here right now? And I, and I told him I was making his, oh, my God. He says, look. Why don't you come work for me? Just give these guys two-week notice. Be nice to them. I, I, but I could really use you. Because he would come in, and he would find me. And he's like, hey, I need uh, two 30-amp, two-pole breakers. I need uh, 60 feet of, you know, uh, uh, three-quarter-inch EMT. I need some 10-gauge uh, THSN in three colors. I don't care which colors. Blah, blah. <laughs> and I knew what he was talking about, you know. And... And I didn't mess around. I just, okay, I know that. And I didn't have to write it down or nothing. And so he was like, I love this kid, right? <laughs> so he hires me for an, an absurd amount of money. At the, I mean, I was blown away. I forgot what it was, but it was like $9 an hour or something. More than you were ever making. Oh, my God. I was like, holy shit. All right, I'll do that. My, and he was religious. We started at 6 o'clock in the morning. We had our breaks and at like three o'clock we're gone no overtime we have work assignments get the work done go home religious about it and so i did it and then he's like he and he kept saying what else can you do what else can you do this and all of a sudden all the pieces kind of came together and i started uh building equipment from scratch he would say, hey, i got to weld this, this placard on the side of a tank. Can you make a machine that would do that automatically? I'm like, I think so, yeah, yeah, that shouldn't be a big deal. And so with the things that I knew and little, little concepts that I understood, I would just, I'd, I'm like, I would draw, make a drawing of the frame, and I actually, I knew what the tank looked like, so I had to have the conveyor to bring it in, and then a stop, and I would just figure it out, and I'd put a motor here and a gearbox and a you know, a DC drive and a little programmable controller. Uh, most time, I, and I would maybe most time use sequential logic. You know, and I would just build these machines, and I did that for five years, and I grew and grew and grew, and then I got headhunted out of there. By don't you find it interesting that you grew up for a period of time with little or no men in your life, and then all of a sudden these men, like Tony at the shop, and then. Uh, another guy and another guy are, are putting you on the right path or giving you opportunities that most kids don't get? Yeah, so if you get stuck feeling bad about who your dad or your mom is or you've been mistreated, that's a choice. Um, I think what happened was I just, I, I had interests and things I wanted to know and I think I was genuine and receptive, and right. so I got back what I gave. Yeah, because these guys gave you unbelievable opportunities. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah, because 
Um, From fixing a carburetor yep. to you know taking you on at a hardware store and then taking you on and telling you, no, you're going to go to school after you graduate. I mean, some guy could have just said, eh, I'm going to keep them around at a two bucks an hour. Yep. But the guy was giving you wings to grow and yes. go. Yes. And the hardware store owner was Bob Ursland. The guy was a saint. I, I can never thank him enough. He, he was always there for me. Um, and, you know, the only reason I don't have relationships with any of these guys is because they left the planet. Um, all the guys that, I, that are still around, I still have contact with them. It's, you know, part of it is not, um, you know, I, I think if you just take, take, take and, and you don't appre- really appreciate it, that's mm-hmm. kind of crappy. Right. You know, I, I, I'm very, very thankful for the, the time people spent with me. And I always gave back. I tried to get back more when I could, but was what was so funny is that um, I also was always like whenever somebody would come in and say, hey, "You want to work for me?" I would go to my boss and say, "Hey," uh, like when I told Bob Ursland, I said, "Hey, um, Glenn Sawyer from Manchester Tank, he wants me to go work for him." He goes, well, "How much is he going to pay you?" And I said, "Well," th- he goes, oh, "John, take the job." So um, I have to admit that in my personal dealings. Um, because, you know, my career transcended into the corporate world, like in a big way. And I, I ended up, like the longest tenure I had was uh, 11 years with uh, Han Office Furniture. So I, I went from Manchester Tank to Han Office Furniture in 1988. And I was only, well, I, I wasn't that old. I mean, I was like 25. What were you doing at an office furniture place? So Han Office Furniture manufactured office furniture. Okay. So they had all the same equipment, almost everything you'd use to build a car. But they built furniture. Furniture. File cabinets, chairs, tables. Uh, so that metal shop, plastics, yep. wood, whatever. Yep. They everything, had it all. everything. So and I knew how to do it all. Like I, there wasn't anything in that place that I couldn't take care of. It wasn't any machinery you hadn't put your hands on. Or, or, the, or the conceptually, like, it was, like, like because uh, the things you do to make things happen are mm-hmm. all based from certain disciplines. Right, The right. physics required to make this melt together and the, you know, it, it's all related. So mm-hmm. I went in there very young and they, they, hired, they hired me as an, uh, a journeyman electrician, which I could do with one hand behind my back. That was like gravy and I started on second shift and mind you this is 1988 and I'm getting paid like 27.50 an hour in 88 you're living the dream oh I was killing it I had I had I, I, uh, I had my little Porsche already so let's go to that then what makes you decide at some point I fall in love with that car. Well, so my cousin Mike had Porsches, like I told right. you. And, and you, that was out of your price range. Way, way out of my price range. It was never thought. Yep. And, and so uh, my winter formal, I asked him if I could borrow his 912. He had a, 60, a, a sand beige 66 912 okay. and a 69 911S, a tangerine 911S. And he says, well, let's take 12. You can't, you can't take the S. And he was smart. So I... Picked up the car, I cleaned the daylights out of it, and I went and picked up my date, 
I couldn't wait to take her ass home, so I go drive the car. <laughs> Seriously, I couldn't wait. I I dumped her ass off at her house in her frilly dress, and I drove that car till the sun came up. I drove up to 710, got into Long Beach, ended up driving up probably almost all the way to Laguna, and then came back the other way, and the sun was starting to come up, and that that was the most rewarding, one of the most, like, I guess it would have been nice to, you know, maybe go take her to a, some place and have a good time, but right. I really wanted to just be in that car. It was amazing, and uh, it, it was... It was a really fun thing, you know, and I... Um, and did that set love in motion? Oh, it, it, that the love was there. That solidified it. I mean, I... You loved it from a distance, but now you're in it. You, that's right. You're, you're in this beautiful machine. Yep. And, he and let, it's, it's love. He let me putt around a couple times, but this was like, it's just me in the car. But now you're driving. This is it. Right. This is it. There's nobody telling me what to do. And I've been driving air-cooled cars for a long time, so I know how they work. And... It was markedly better than any modified Volkswagen I'd ever built, you know, because I'd built a few cars on and off. There, there's Because there's holes in the story here, but I'd had almost every kind of Volkswagen, and I'd buy stuff and kind of dump it, right? make a few bucks here and there. But I knew I wanted a, a Porsche really, really, really bad. And uh, I uh, had been involved. I had an accident. I was uh, T-boned. In my uh, Camaro. Okay. And uh, I had good insurance, and uh, I ended up with this big insurance check. Like I'm like, wow, that's a pretty big chunk of money. So I'm like, oh shit, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy a, a Porsche car. I'm gonna go look. And then I found, but I found a Corvette. So I went and looked at this Corvette in Palos Verdes, and it's beautiful Corvette. Is in primer, but it was all there, and this dude was in the middle of a divorce, and he says, I just need to dump this car. So I, I bought the Corvette, small block Chevy, you know, independent suspension. I'm like, well, shit, this is like both worlds combined. The small block Chevy got you again. Yep, yep, yep. So I'm like, you know what? I'll just buy this. This is fun. But, so, you, but you had your mind on that Porsche. What, oh, yeah. Why not pull the trigger? Well, it's just funny. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a car guy. And I was just weighing options and, and how much money I had. And I'm like, well, shit, I get this Corvette. It's not painted, so it's, it's really affordable. I'll just, I'll paint it and do a few mods. I have this bitchin', you know, lightweight Chevy with independent suspension and disc brakes. I'm like, this would be badass, right? I gave the guy a down payment. And I told him, I'll come back in the weekend. I'll come get this car. He calls me a couple days later. He says, hey. No problem, no big deal. I took the car out and I, I broke a stub axle. I don't know what happened. I go, you don't know what happened? You probably do burnouts and clutch drops. I said, I don't want the car. Oh, he, dude, it's only, he's like, dude, it's only like 200 bucks. I said, listen to me, I'm coming back. I want my money back. And he's like, oh, all right. So I, I drove to PV and he gave my money back. And uh, I had a chunk of money, and I, I had, I think I had like sixty-six hundred dollars cash. And so, um, Brenda, who's you know my wife, 
girlfriend at the time? Uh, let's see, when was this? Yeah, probably, yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, she followed me to Northridge in her little square back. <laughs> she, I, we drove in her square back. Right. And, and we get to this consignment lot in Northridge because I went to look at a 911. And I get there, and the, and the guy shows up. Because it, it was funny. It was a, a above-ground trailer. You have little steps going up right. and a little balcony, and then you walk into the thing, and there's a guy there, you know, with a desk. And if there's a car you like, he calls the owner, and they come down to this consignment lot on the corner where they sell pumpkins and Christmas trees, you know. Right. And so I, I look at the, the guy comes, and I look at the, and he, I just, can you start it up? And he starts it up. And it's like, tick, 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 tick. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, there's something wrong with that motor. Oh, it runs good. I'm like, oh, it might run good, but that's not right. That's not a good sound. He's like, oh, it's probably just a valves or something like that. I said, nah, I'm going to pass. You don't want to drive it? I said, no. In fact, I'm kind of bummed out we drove. Because, mind you, we're in Southgate. Northridge is a long-ass yeah. long drive. So, um, so then I'm looking around, and... Uh, there's a Jag, beautiful 12-cylinder Jag. And I saw that. I'm like, oh, shit, let's go look at that. So the old geezer who owned that car comes down, and I start looking at it, and Brenda is, God bless her, she's saved me so many times this way. <laughs> she's like, do you really want that? That car looks funny. She, like, she will, like, call cars I think are beautiful. She'll, like, call them something like a potato bug. Right. Or a, oh, that looks like a... That's weird. It's like some kind of caterpillar looking thing. I, all right, Brenda. Okay, all right. So <laughs> then we're getting ready to leave. And I didn't see it the whole time, but there's just a little white 912 off to the side. I'm like, well, let's go look at that. So we go look at it. I'm looking at it. I'm like, well, it looks pretty good. So uh, anyways, long story short, the they call the owner and he shows up. Guy drives up in a 930 turbo. What a turbo. weird process. You call people to come and bring keys. to. St- yeah. So this guy comes up in this beautiful white 930 Turbo. He's got Jimmy Connor uh, tennis clothes on, baby blue, a white over sweater. He's got the sweat bands on his wrist and on his head. He's like, you know, this super handsome Adonis looking dude jumps out. Did Brenda like his car? (laughs) She She didn't give rat's ass. She just want to go home probably by this time. <laughs> she just buy a car and get out. Buy a goddamn car and get out of here. So we, uh, I didn't know what Tourette syndrome was. Oh. I had no idea. Never been exposed to it. Never heard of it. Nothing, right? My right, own little part sure. of the world. The gentleman who owned the car has Tourette's. And I guess one of the things that happens when they're nervous, it comes out. And one of the most nervous things ever is meeting someone for the first time sure and maybe selling a car you like whatever so he starts doing this crazy stuff you know like and I'm like and I look at Brenda and he's like I'm so sorry he goes and and anyways he finally explains he goes I have this syndrome just let me calm down and he finally calms down so that was like and I'm like what the hell's going on here so ends up being a super cool dude um, taught me something another thing to know about Mm -hmm. and uh We've we've communicated over the years on and off. Um, guy ends up being like a world famous art director 
like super famous, like it's worked with some big people and big, big things. He's a very well accomplished guy. He's still around. He lives in, uh, doesn't live in California anymore. He lived in Silmar at the time, but it's just funny. So we make a deal on the car and he's like, he's like, kid, how much money do you have? And I said, I got 6,600 bucks. He goes, well, I got to get six grand for this car. So he kind of played me and I actually told him how much money I had. I didn't even negotiate. Right. And six grand for 68, nine, 12 back then was a lot of money. You didn't do any research? No idea? Um, you know, I've always been, it's funny, like now I would do that. Right. But back then I was totally a creature of, I want that. You point at it, I want it, I buy it. I want that. And if I have what, the money, I just spend it. What would it. the value have been for that car? It was probably closer to a $4,500 car. Okay. Um, I paid 911 money for the 912, but I'll tell you what I got. I got a friendship with the owner, you know, he knows who I am still, and I, I know him. And if we were to talk, we'd probably have a good conversation. Um, but what I really, really got was a really super cool car that had documentation, okay, matching numbers, original toolkit, the seat belts, the window sticker, the original keys, everything, everything, everything. And that gentleman was the second owner. I'm the third owner. Um, but it was a really cool car and it was the seed that started everything that I have today. Absolutely. Because I dove into that car. It, it needed to be fixed. It needed some things, but that car ended up becoming, um, the test bed for all my wacky ideas. Um, I pushed that car to its limits. I ended up racing the car with POC for a decade, um, I broke everything you could break at speed, trying to go as fast as that car would go. And I had so much seat time in the car, which is a, one of the best weapons you can have, no matter what power your car has or what it's capable of. If you have a lot of seat time in it, you know what it's going to do. And it gives you so and much. What it can't do. What it can and can't do. Yeah, that's key, right? Oh, yeah. If you, it once, handles this way yep, yep. when it's cold and yep. when it's hot. Yep. And when, yeah. And tell uh, me this, I'm yeah. naive on this. Tell me this. What is the difference between a 911 and a 912? So for the year model, they both existed side by side. Mm -hmm. No difference except for the engine. Size, that's it, right? Uh, well, you have a four-cylinder versus a six-cylinder. Okay. So, so the four-cylinder that lived in a 912 is the same engine that was in the 356 SC. Okay. Towards the end of that era. There was a moment in time in 1965 when you could go to a lot and there was, uh, in Europe in any case, you could have a 356, a 912, and a 911 all sitting three wide at the dealer. The 912 didn't come to the United States until 66, 65, 66. Um, but uh, the main difference is the engine. That's it. Yeah. And then there's different trim levels sure. and options. But, you know, some some people, whoever these people are, because uh, you know, I never got to met, meet them, but um, it's it's so fun to get your hands on a 912 and get the Cardex and see that some doctor or some serviceman in Germany said, I want a 912, not a 911, because they understood that motor out of the 356. But they wanted all this new stuff. The, the, the better looking 
car. The well, I'm actually better looking. Right. But the this uniquely different a car. Different, yeah. And and the 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 textures and the feel. It's just a different car with the same heart. Some better handling characteristics and uh, just just a. It, they're kind, they're cool. I, I love them. Right. So, because when we did that that video piece with you, yeah. the way you talked about that nine twelve was like the way you talk about a lover. Sure. I mean the way you talk about it, how it handles and its speed and everything. I mean, is there such a physical difference when you drive eleven to a twelve that you just know how twelves handle? Like that's just the better. You prefer okay, that. Okay. So so on a short course. A really tight, like sea of cones, mm-hmm. parking lot exhibition. A nine twelve is going to be better than a nine eleven. The the nine eleven has a has more torque and higher top speed for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and you know when you're driving a car, every car has different physics at play because of the way they put together. But right, a nine eleven, a nine twelve, a Volkswagen Beetle, all those cars that have that engine in the back. They're really unique and fun to drive because you can set your angle by uh, letting off the gas a little bit or maybe even applying brake at the right time. And you can get the back of that car to just come around so nice and then get on the gas and shoot at exactly where you want to go, and it's fun. A 912 allows you to have more inertia than a 911 and still be and on the on the edge of grip, so you can really just hammer along. Because um, you were talking about when we did that driving that car, you're like, oh, if we had this suspension with these tires yep. at this inflation, oh, this would be a great drive. Mm-hmm. So like you're taking all those things into account per this road. Oh yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of little things you do from experience. You know, you you if you really want to get the most, okay, it's like you're you're. Like I used my 912 for everything for a long, long time. I, my wedding day, it was my car. I brought my kids home from the hospital in that car. I won driving championships in that car. You still have that car? I still have that car. Now, why, why did you never say at any point in your life, I'm going to get rid of this one and get that one? Because I, that car is part of me. As I know it's an inanimate object, and I know I won't be here to ev- forever. The car... Potentially will be along, hopefully longer than <laughs> than me, and maybe who knows how long. But uh, the, the car because it wasn't your first car. No, no. But it was your first Porsche. It was. It was like all the other cars were like I was dating, and maybe had some puppy love here and there. But I fell in love with that car. I fell in love with that car. It, it did everything I wanted to do. And once I got it sorted, it just would do it without failure. Right. Um, I ran a lot of cars to failure and a lot of different things to failure. I just really liked that combination. Um, So what drives you then with this? And I don't know how far we jump along in in time, but okay. So you're now 912, got your car and you're a happy camper. Yeah. Where do you decide to like, I'm going to take this into a career? So that's funny. I I still considered it a hobby. So I ended up, uh, I was racing in the mid-80s. I totally dedicated 
weekends at where Will, but, Willow Springs or oh, wherever yeah, you yeah, could? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I would, uh, at first I just, I drove my car there. I'd take some air out of the tires and, and go out and beat the living daylights out of my car. And then drive it home. And then drive home. <laughs> And I met a guy. Everybody named, else had it on flatbeds, and you're driving trailers and stuff. Yeah. And I met Dwayne Spencer there. He was one of my greatest mentors of all time. Great Porsche guru. God bless, bless his soul. Um, but I, I, uh, you know, he would say, "You drove here." I remember when I first met. Him, he goes, "You drove here? Where do you live?" I said, "I live in Downey." He's like, "Oh my God!" He says, "You know, you blow the thing up. It's a long, it's a long walk." I'm like, <laughs> "I know, but it won't blow up." He goes, "Oh no, it's gonna blow up," and he was right. But, you know, um, I, uh, but, but, you know, I, okay, I will say this. By the time I got to the place where it did blow up, I had a very ingenious solution. I used to flat tow my car towards the end. Which is? Well, I didn't have, I, I modified my car. It's not there anymore, but I cut slots in my front bumper and I put a sandwich plate and I just, I put a tow bar onto the front of my car when I'd go to the track and I had a, a PO, uh, you know, piece of shit truck, and I put the race tires and wheels in the back, and a jack and some tools, because I was really pushing the limits, and uh, I would pull up to the pits, pull in, pull two pins, it would fall to the ground, <laughs> and I would start my car and warm it up and go right out, you know. Oh no, I would, you know, uh, change switch, the tires, change right? the wheels over real quick, and I was always like right on the track, like just ready to go, and no trailer in the way. So I, I could just work, and I had way more room in the pits. All my stuff was in the truck, and uh, Brenda would make sandwiches, and we'd just have a good time. And I, I really liked that, you know. It was just simplicity. Um, I mean, some people were out of their minds. They had, like, giant trailers and assistants and mechanics. And What did she think of this at the time? Brenda? Yeah, did she think it was just a hobby and it would fade after a couple of years? Or? Brenda is the best companion in the world because we absolutely enjoy each other's company but we don't have to be on top of whatever the other person is doing so if we're doing the same thing like our a big part of our courtship was fishing which she's very good at the gods favor her when it's <laughs> that's the situation but um she is awesome because she can just read a book I mean, there's like cars going by at insane speeds, very loud. Smells like gas. Yeah, and and she, she could just flip through. She's a book. just reading a magazine or reading a book, and then later on when we had kids, we would put the playpen in the pits. The kids have their toys, you know, and she's making sandwiches for the whole frickin' place, <laughs> and and we're just hanging out. And the, the kids, same thing. The kids. They could give a crap that a turbo just went by at 130 miles an hour and, you know, backfiring and all this shit. They don't care. The, the kids are just, just, that's where they were at. Right. And, uh, but uh, Brenda is just uh, super supportive. She's been, always been super supportive of whatever crazy thing I might want to do. And then at some point you decide this hobby is going to be more? Yeah, so... I had been doing work since the early mid '80s on other people's cars okay. at the house, and then it got out of control. So then I had a little shop on the side, but that was not a business. It was like a clandestine operation, 
And I made a lot of cash money out of that. Just fixing cars? Just fixing cars, mostly building engines. That was my favorite thing to do. Okay. And so on the other side, I have my... And you do that on weekends or nights? At night and on the weekends, yeah, because my job was a 40, 45-hour-a-week job managing systems and operations for... Uh, at the Well, like towards the end, uh, the last job I had was uh, Curtis Wright Okay. Uh, as a facilities engineer. And uh, so I'm, I'm doing my thing, and I'm making pretty good dough on the side. And um, I, I'll share this because I've experienced it three times, and it finally burned me out. And I think we may have talked about this before. There was a great generation that we stand on the shoulders of, and they fought to make this country possible. Okay, there is evil in the world Mm -hmm. and it pops up once in a while. And our grandfathers went over to Europe and these little islands out in the Pacific and gave everything so we can sit here and have this talk. Okay, I I, and I'm very thankful for that. And some people after World War Two were given a choice. Thank you for making these Jeep parts. Thank you for making these guns. You can keep all this equipment. We're done. The contract's over. Thank you very much. Some dudes sold off all the equipment, and some dudes, very few, I think, actually said, hey, let's do this. And one of them was a guy named Maxwell Stanley, and he was the founder of Han Office Furniture that I worked for. And I'm glad I got to actually meet the, the man, Okay. And if his grandson's listening, I'm sorry. But this bugs me a lot because I experienced this three times. A family-owned business. The owner of that business makes a good living. And he's and they're good people. Mm-hmm. Takes care of his employees. Shares in the profit. And it is a really symbiotic relationship that becomes productive and is cool. And that's America to me. Right. Because it helped get me here. Right. I watched this happen three times where the grandsons of our best generation were afforded every opportunity to excel and propelled by great men like that man I described that built that company. They got their MBA. And what did they do? What can we do to make the quick dollar? and move on to the next thing. So they take a company like Han Company and do an IPO, has to answer to people that have no clue what we do, don't care, they just want their, they just want that return on investment. Mm -hmm. The company didn't need any investment. The investment was from the man that owned that place and the people that went to work every day. They both invested, they both reaped benefit. I watched that company get destroyed. It's still around, but it's a shell of its former self. Ah, that's a shame. And then I watched that happen with other places I worked. And then by the time the end of my tenure, I'm working for this pretty globally known entity. And I really thought I gave my all at all of these jobs. But I just saw this repetitive, like, squeeze. And I, I watched... 
my I, like I know what I made doing what I did early in mm -hmm. my career as a skilled member, and I watched the amount they paid people that did what I did 10 years before, less money for the same job. And I'm like, why is that happening? Why, why this imbalance? Why is that dude who's so good at doing what he does worth less money 10 years later? Right. It, it, the, it did, the math didn't add up to me. And then I became, a, I had a supervisory role. And I started to get just really frustrated that they weren't like, hey, what can we do to make this better? It was like, it was always, what can we do to make more money and spend less to get, which I guess that's cool and it makes sense. It's capitalism and it's, some, it's a form of capitalism. But I just started to get really burned out because even if I was making a shitload of money up in management, it bothered me that people were like really busting ass and dedicated to the task. But the quality of life just seemed to be going down every 10 years. Like, I, I felt like I grew up in paradise, even with all that other crap going on. Right. I felt like, wow, this is a great situation. You get in what you, you get out what you put in. I, the harder I push, the better it is. I create stuff and everybody's happy. And just, it just seemed like a really weird environment after a while. And then um, I was up for a promotion. Um, I was going to get our, like, this missile division in Santa Ana. And the guy who was running it at the time, he told me, he said, oh, John, I put in the word, and I'm like, great, I f I'm going to become a GM, and I'm only 40-something, and I'm just going to rock. This is all I got to do now, and I can do my Porsche stuff on the side. And, right. And uh, the day comes, the announcement, we're all sitting around this big wooden table. The execs from New Jersey come out, we're all sitting around the table, and the, the guy that I report to all right, I'd like to make the announcement. And he does not point at me. Points across the table at somebody that's completely not the guy for the job. I'm not quite sure what the hell's going on. And what it boiled down to is he didn't want me to have a division. He wanted me to keep doing what I was doing. Which wasn't necessarily the best thing for the company. I mean, give somebody else a chance, you know, and let me get some accolades and finish out my tenure, put in another 20 years and retire and everything's good. Right. So when that happened, I, I literally had a nervous breakdown right there at the table. I, I stood up at the table and I looked, I looked at him and I said, are you serious? He's like, John, I said, no, are you, this is really happening. He's like, John, let's table this. I'm like, nope. And I got up and I left the room. I left the conference room. I went upstairs. I took down all my certificates and placards, picture of Brendan and the kids, threw this box of shit in my car, and I went home. That's it. That was it. I left my shop keys on my desk, and that was it. And I got a, my cell phone's blown up, and I finally answer it, and it's Al, and he's, John, where are you? I said, I'm sorry. That's none of your business. I don't work for you anymore. And I hung up. And I got a check for... I got a check... Uh, the severance check thing, like whatever it was. And uh, Brenda came home and she's like, what are you doing home? <laughs> <laughs> you, 
You know, it's supposed I mean, to be at work. They, they called me because uh, the accounting department called and said, "Hey, are you really quitting?" I'm like, "Yep," and they told me what's going on. So I, that's why I brought this. I'm just this is all coming back to me right. now. But I, I was totally calm about it. And Brenda's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I, I quit." She's like, "You did what?" And I said, "I quit." I said, I, "I got thrown under the bus in a weird way, and I'm not happy, and uh, I'm just tired. This is like the last time I'm going to put up with this corporate." You know, structure the, the way it was. The best doesn't rise to the top all the time. I'm not saying I'm the best, but I did what I needed to do, mm-hmm. and I knew who the players were, and it just didn't make any sense to me. Okay. So, and I didn't want to be a pawn in somebody else's weird game. So, I said, "That's it. I'm not doing it anymore." And Brenna says, "What are you going to do?" I said, "I don't know." And so Brenna says, "Why don't you just open up a shop, full, like full time?" Just make your shop your business. And where was the shop originally? Or not, the first, this little teeny shop? This, uh, that was in Southgate. I don't want to say hobby shop, but the, the shop. Okay. Yeah, Southgate. Over off of uh, Imperial and Garfield. Okay. By the River Tracks. So I... So what do you do? I did it. You come just, up with a name? You come up with a logo? What do you do? What's your... So my buddy... What's your Monday like or whatever? Well, so my a buddy of mine I went to school with, Joe Lopez, he... Uh, had become a graphic artist and designer. And uh, he gave me a CD-ROM. And he says, here's 10 grand. I'm like, really? He goes, well, it's worth 10 grand. And it was all the logos that I use today, to this day. He, he did it all. He did Benton. When you see this, he did uh-huh. that. This B logo, he did that. There's another logo called Benton Built, which I still have some of those decals. But... And Benton Engineering. So he gave that to me as a gift that I still use to this day. And uh, so my, my friends were there for me. They all thought I'd lost my mind. Cause yeah, I made, I'm sure I, they probably I, did. I made really good money. I had a bitchin' fishing boat and a dually and the trailer to go with that. Because you were very corporate, and all of a sudden yep. people are thinking maybe you went through just a little midlife crisis. Yep. Like breaking down all of a sudden, your Michael Douglas moment, you're just yep. like, I'm out of here. Yep. But the same mindset that's like, I want that. I had the, an epiphany and this shift, and I'm like, I want that. As soon as it came off of Brenda's, out of her mouth, I, the first thing was I wanted out. Like, I'm not going to do this, and I got a few bucks in the bank. And, and I wasn't like super wealthy or nothing, but I had a 401k, and I had some different things. And I said, you know, I can live without the boat live without the truck. I don't need this. I don't need that. And I'm just going to focus on building engines and, and honing my other skills. And did you think there was a market big enough for you to sustain maybe a year building engines? Well, I knew, well, I did the math real fast in my head. The only thing keeping me from making more money doing engines is because I wasn't doing it all the time. Okay. So the, the other 40 hours you were being held back, if you could do yeah, it. Yeah, I have other responsibilities, you know, mm-hmm. wife and family and stuff sure. like that. So um, I, I just always said, well, if I do this many motors, I'll make this much money. I help Brenda cover the nut, and we're good. And so that's, that's what I did. And initially it was just building engines. And, I, and they, it was just one after another. There was no – and see, part of that was that – Now, how would you get word of mouth out now that you need, a, you need more motors? Well, it's funny because uh, I – it's funny how things just came together. About the same time, the 912 Registry had formed, which was an informal club. 
that became more and more formal. So then I would host parties at my house. Okay. My little house, the only house I've ever owned. Right. You know, thousand square feet of heaven over in Downey. I, um, Brendan and I would host parties for 150 people. The, the street would be lined with cars. <laughs> neighbors and, probably thought, what the hell? Well, the neighbors would come over too. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a, such a good time. And uh, it seems like a million years ago, but it wasn't that long ago. And, um, but because I had been racing a 912 in a world full of 911s, and st- my rep- I had a little reputation, and my car was fun. Like, you know, there'd be a line of 912s, and you hear them start, and you hear mine start. And we'd go on these drives, and I would just, like, scream, you know. And people were like, holy shit. And they wanted that. And and I apologize for to anyone who felt the way I feel about young, upcoming upstarts now. And what I mean by that is, God bless you. I wish you the best but if you do this in your backyard for half the price of what it cost me to do it, I understand how that's, you know, because I, I was doing incredible stuff for much less than a shop would charge because I have the overhead. Right. So then this is a funny thing. I'll tell you. When I went legit, I was confronted with the new equation. I've got $4,000 a month rent for the shop. Is this the Habra shop? Yep. Okay. Because I, I, I opened up the Habra shop. Now, why'd you pick La Habra? Because a friend of mine wanted to go into business with me. And he lived over in Orange County in Brea. Okay. And he found this location. It was a pretty cool location. The price is right. And Yeah, it's a great little shop. Yep. And I just wanted to... I mean, there's, there's a bunch of stuff going on in the background here, but it would take forever to tell this story. Long and short of it, I wanted to partner up. He's a buddy of mine. And we weren't... 100% in in sync. And that's a, that happens a lot with partners. Yeah, partners are for dancing. And and you better have your shit together if you look, want to look good while you're dancing Someone's going to step on someone's toes and get jealous. And So it, it was, well, what ended up happening was that I'm thinking we're going to do Porsches and maybe some high-end, but European stuff. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to do some more hot rod stuff. And I didn't want to do that, really, not to a great extent. And, uh, like, overnight, he had moved a bunch of hot rod stuff into the shop. And I had rented some equipment to do electrical work in the shop. And when I got there, it just it upset me. So we got in an argument. And, and how, how early into this relationship in the shop are we talking? Oh, very early. First couple months? Oh, first couple weeks. Oh, boy. Which is good. Okay. So, I guess if you're going to have issues, have it now. Yeah. So we agreed to disagree, and he had put the money down to get the shop. So to keep him from getting his ass reamed, I just decided, even though it was an inconvenience, to just – I'll make a run of it here, even though it's a fucking hour drive to get all the way here every day. Right. You from Downey to La Habra. And, so, and to this day, I've moved further away. Now I'm in Anaheim, <laughs> you know. And all the – most of the employees live very close to the, the, that location. So – I don't mind. I don't mind. In, in fact, I really enjoy using the commute to, to take care of business far away because I can call people in Europe mm-hmm. and parts suppliers in Europe and customers in Europe and use that hour as a power hour 
and make the drive not so painful because I'm right. getting something done. Right. Um, that's how I ended up in La Habra. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's been tough to, uh, maintain some relationships as you grow. Um, like a lot of people that used to come to me when I was in my backyard, stopped coming. Why? Because they couldn't afford the shop rate. Uh, they literally would like, John, this is a lot of money. I'm like, this is the bill. Right. You had to keep, you know, you're, you got overhead now and rentals yeah. and yeah. tools. And, yeah. And at that point, is it just you? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, brought, I started bringing people on um, probably around 2007 or eight. When did you go to La Havre? What year is that? 2005. Okay. Somewhere around there. So for those first three years of business, yeah. what are you learning? Because now you're running a business. You're not running out of your garage. You're not running out of a hobby place out of Southgate. Now it's yeah, a so, full-fledged business. Well, okay, so I learned, and, I, and uh, my main thing was to try to be legit. You know, like I didn't want to get— Taxes. Yeah, I wanted to make sure I didn't caught it, get caught in a deal where the city or somebody thought I was trying to hustle them. Right. Because that'll put you out of business. Oh, yeah, they'll come down on you. Like Unless you got a shitload of money, you don't give a shit, and you're going to choke them with attorneys or whatever. I, that's not me. I didn't have the power. So I uh, I literally, ig almost ignorantly, I, I went to the city of La Habra. I said, what do I need to do? And and they love that. Sure. They love that. So I, I just made sure I completely whatever the rules were I made sure I had my uh, business license under control I uh, right away got with the Bureau of Automotive Repair okay um, which is no big deal it's like $200 a year right but you're crossing T's and dot and I's oh, I, I wanted to know and I went to uh, people that I knew that had shops and asked them what am I supposed to do and I just did it who's handling billing I was doing everything and where'd you get that knowledge? I asked questions and I got copies of ROs from other shops mm -hmm. that I knew of and just changed, put my name on it and stuff. Okay. And uh, where I fell on my sword early on, there's an archaic system that's there to protect the, the customer. And the Bureau, Bureau of Automotive Repairs and the law that they try to enforce is based in 50s law that was put in place to keep somebody from overcharging someone for an alternator. Okay. You know, like you go in and you say, my, my lights don't work and I got no power. So you bring the car in and you put an alternator in and they give you the bill and the bill's 50 bucks. And you're like, holy shit. You know, we're talking about 1950. Right. The alternator's 895 and it, it took you 30 minutes to put it in and you charged me 50 bucks? Mm -hmm. Well, that's messed up. I agree. It's messed up. So there, the law regarding auto repair is so convoluted and retarded. I, I'm just over it. It's, you, I have to give a teardown estimate. You know, it's just Still like a, to this day. To this day, you're supposed to give an estimate of repairs and, a, and, and then you have options after that. So, uh, you bring me a car and 
and you say, oh, I, it doesn't run. Well, fuck, it's a 50-year-old vintage sports car. I don't know who that, who's been touching it. And you want me to give you an estimate. The, the car's in a box or boxes. What's the estimate? So early on, I tried to do that. I'm like, okay, it's, it's impossible. I, I can't tell you what it's going to cost to put this car back together until the end. It, it's, really, it's the truth because I don't know what's hiding underneath the paint. I don't know what's hiding underneath those seats when I take them out. I don't know what's inside the motor until I take it apart. So, I have, so early on, I tried to do auto repair and auto restoration, two different things. Oh, yeah. So if somebody comes in and see, I've had to really change things up at my shop so many times to try to protect the shop because it's not just me now. You know, I'm feeding six families. So, you know, I, I really get frustrated with people. Um, so now I have to be an educator to the client. Mm-hmm. I have to be very patient because it's too easy to get upset. And what that is is just me being selfish and assuming everybody already knows and assuming that people understand what's going on. They don't. A doctor, a lawyer, a school teacher, an accountant, that's what they do all day, and they're good at it. That's great. But they don't know what it takes to put a motor together. They don't know that they're paying me for more than the repair. They're paying me for all the experience. Right. You know, they're they're going to get a better outcome because I know the pitfalls. I know what's going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm here trying to make do the best thing for them. That's why they came to me, hopefully, right? So um, I've had to put together a, a contract basis for work that's not repairs. So I can still give an estimate for repair like or a, a small job. Somebody comes, comes in and says, I'd like to get a set of sports seats. I'm like, okay, well, here's the selection. Which ones do you want? I like that style. I'm like, okay, that style, those two seats with the brackets are $2,800, and it's three hours to put them in. There's your estimate. That's super easy. So that's an NRO, on NRO, you know, a document. Mm-hmm. We agree. They sign it. If anything else happens, I call them up, make a note of it. They say yes or no. But that's how that game plays out. Right. Early on, I was trying to do everything on an RO, which is almost impossible. An Can't RO, be done. It It's just stupid because I, if you try to all the – and put, why were you trying to do that? Because I was naive and I thought it was just – I could do the RO, get the signature, handshake, thank you very much, and just start working on the car. And and and, and I had a, a business line of credit. So, you know, I do forty, fifty thousand $50,000 worth of work on a car and the people come and they just pay me that money. So I'm carrying all that debt. Right. Okay. But I was so like I had, what happened, Matt, is that I had never had to deal with anyone that didn't just go with the flow. You know, before it was like cash, shake hands. Right. Now there's a bank account, there's taxes to be paid. There's no under like people are like, hey, I'll pay you cash. I'm like, nope. Just pay I don't care how you pay me. It's going in the bank. Right. Cause I, I it wasn't I had to be smart about it. I sure. just I wanted to be above boards in all ways. So I had never encountered a shark. And when I did, 
I almost died. I had someone come into my shop, smile at me, and pat me on the back, and tell me what they wanted, and sign the RO, and did the work, and they're like, oh, I, I didn't authorize this work. I don't have to pay you anything. And I was blown away, like, wow. Somebody can stand in front of you knowing that they got exactly what they wanted, but because the law says this, if, if you really want to go there, mm -hmm. they can get out of paying this bill. Because during the build, they're saying, oh, can you do this? Oh, oh, oh and can you do this? So when it comes time to get paid, it's like, oh, no, the RO says we're going to do that. Why did you do all this other work? Well, because you told me to. Well, I didn't authorize it. By law, you're supposed to have an addendum, and ha I have to sign it. And I'm like, and I, I was blown away by that, that, uh, that a man could stand in front of me with exactly what he wanted, sitting right there, and almost put me out of business just to do that. I, I don't understand where that comes from. I, I didn't see it coming. So that was quite a learning experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm still, I'm still trapped in a, in a funny place because I just I long for a world that's never going to exist. In a way, we all are. We all kind of want, like, the perfect business, great clients. They come in. Not that you tell them what to do, but they trust your experience. They understand that you know the craft. You're going to build the best car you possibly can for them without breaking the bank. And I'm sure you're going to have some clients that say to you, there is no dollar amount. Just build me this. And then there's some with the giant wallet, and they still nickel and dime you. Or they don't trust you. I, I, I don't think it's unique to me. It's just the way of the right, world. Right, right. You know? Yeah, look, you and I have bought cars for our families. Yes. And we think we're like Joe Diamond. We're going to walk in and show these guys how it's done. I don't think anybody's ever walked into a dealership and gotten the smoking deal. <laughs> they may believe that they got the smoking deal, but... Right. Um, I mean, how much do they really pay for a car? Like, you see the sticker. I, I'd be, I don't think I've ever seen the actual... True invoice. value of a Honda Accord. Like yeah. only somebody that works at a dealership knows really what that <laughs> what that real number is. Yeah, it's pretty funny. I, maybe you could find out. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, in a perfect world, it would be just like that, you know. Did you outgrow La Habra? Is that why they moved to Anaheim? Yeah, we were outgrowing that area. And the way La Habra was set up, we had two adjoining units and then two storage units. And uh, so the combined square footage... But you were within walking distance of In-N-Out. Oh, literally walking distance, yes. It's right across the street. <laughs> right across the street. And, and you know how many times I ate there? Once. In five years, twice. Oh! Were there too many high school kids from Sonora blocking your way? No, you know what's funny is uh, I'm a jack-in-the-box guy. Really? Well, that's not that's right down the street, right too. Right down the street. Right down La Palma. That's, Boom, that's right there correct. Imperial. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just, I never... I don't know. It's funny. I, I do eat in and out once in a while, but to this day, I know it's disgusting, like just one step above dog food, but I'm, 
<laughs> I'm a, a Ralston Perina fan. <laughs> and did they get busted for kangaroo meat at one point? That, I don't think that's a. Uh, I think that's. A, I think that's true. <laughs> it's one of those urban legends. Is actually true, but um, you know, that's discriminatory. Well, uh, why can't you eat a kangaroo? Why can't you eat a kangaroo? I mean, I've never had one, but if I had me, and I might have had yeah. one, I wouldn't complain about it. Yeah, if it tastes good and it, you know, feels good, eat, eat it. it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you've decided, okay, Labra's just. I've outgrown La Habra. How do you find the spot in, in Anaheim? What are you, what are you looking for? Because that's I've always okay, find so, interesting. Like okay. when you see shops, like what's this shop looking for? Where do you decide? Uh, what's the pros and cons to a shop? Is it location or or what? Well, there's a big hole in the story because there's been a lot of situations that are uncomfortable dealing with people in business. Yes, and so I had. I had a stint between 2000 and 2005. Let me think about this. Yeah, somewhere in there. I got involved in other stuff. Okay. Um, and I got involved in Chrysler vehicles. You say that like you were with the mafia. It, that's what it felt like. Because <laughs> you used the term got involved. Yes. So if you had said cartel, you might have smiled before. You said, well, we worked on a few cars for people that were absolutely cartel people. And I, I. They've got money, too. No, I, you know, I'm not discriminatory <laughs> about that, but it gets weird. I mean, I uh, today what I do, I would never let some of those shenanigans go down because. You're wiser. Well, yeah, because I, when we when I got involved with the this. OK, I bought my first Mopar product, it was the first new vehicle I ever owned for me. All the old new vehicles we ever had were for Brenda and the kids. So I... Minivans, whatever they were. I always were. had used stuff. Mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. I had nice used stuff, but I had used stuff and, you know, do what I have to do, maybe fix it a little bit. But my first brand new vehicle was a 2000 Dodge Magnum RT. Uh, it wasn't a Magnum. No, it was an RT with a Magnum engine. So it was an RT truck. Okay. And so it had this 4.7 liter Magnum V8 uh, in a mid-sized truck chassis. And I thought it was the most fabulous thing. I, I read about it. I saw it at the auto show. And then I did a test drive in one, a 99. Okay. Which ironically got recalled for some reason. I can't remember what it was. But uh, <laughs> I ordered what I wanted and it was a 2000 model in this electric blue pearl and bitchin wheels just out of the box it's a fun little vehicle but um, it wasn't a Chevy a Chevy back in the day even in 2000 had a great aftermarket just waiting for you because Chevy and Ford shared with SEMA at a very high level and uh Mopar, Chrysler, did things their own way. And then I don't think they did a whole lot of sharing because at that time, Mopar Performance, I don't think they even existed yet. But I had this V8-powered truck, and I couldn't go down and just get stuff to kind of, you know, soup it up and have fun with it. Really? Nothing? Not really, no. They caught up later. Okay. Mopar did catch up. Um, I don't know where they're at now because I've kind of fallen out of it. But I ended up... Uh, I had this truck, and Brenda comes out 
one morning, I'm in the backyard, and I've got the engine out of the truck and the transmission sitting on a picnic <laughs> table in the backyard. And the truck's completely, like, up on jack stands. I've got it, the whole drivetrain disassembled. <laughs> and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I said, I love this truck, but it's just not right. So I um, went over to Transgo. I brought the, the I took the um, valve body out of the transmission. And I went over to Transgo, and they we kind of, danced around some of the options and they gave me a, an assortment of uh, springs and ball bearings and pins and things and I, so I they're all color coded so I kind of guessed at what I wanted and then another buddy of mine I took the torque converter to him because it was too loosey-goosey I it, it was it was locking up way too soon uh, so you weren't really getting into the torque off the line you know it's just too soft. So he built me a 3,000 RPM stall torque converter, and uh, I installed the shift kit, and then I took the throttle body off, and uh, I made a bigger throttle body, and uh, and I made a set of traction bars for it. I copied a Caltrax-style traction bar. Anyways, I made you all this. You couldn't help yourself. I just made it, my truck into the way I wanted it. And it took me about two months, and I finished the truck, and I took it down to, I think it was Palomar, to the brackets, and the truck was dialing really, really well, and I could kind of, like, really make it hit the number I wanted. And I, and I, also, I, I messed with the uh, air temperature control, too, to richen up the mixture, and I wasn't done yet. This was, like, the first foray into it, and I... I, I uh, and I built a fun truck that sounded to me. I put, redid the exhaust and stuff on it, but I went to Jack in the Box <laughs> in the truck. And I was working over, uh, I was uh, used, to, I had three facilities for um, Curtis Wright. One was in Vernon, one was in Linwood, and one was in Santa Ana. Okay. And my main office that I had an office was in Vernon. So I would go into this jack-in-the-box. And one day, I'm sitting in the jack-in-the-box, ordered my food, and and I'm in line. And this guy comes running up to my window, scared the hell out of me. And he says, hey, where'd you? who did your truck? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, your truck is, I, I have the same truck, but yours just sounds amazing, and it looks awesome. I'm like, well, I did it. So this dude worked as a sales executive and he's got some dough and he's a wheeler dealer who thinks in a way I never would think in a million years. So he says, Hey, can we, can we, I'll pull over here, pull over here and, and we'll talk. So I'm eating my tacos. We've got the tailgate down bullshitting. He says, well, can you set my truck up like yours? And I said, yeah, sure. I said, here's my phone. Here's my number. Call me. Um, and, uh, and I'm such a dork. I'm like, here, just, I'll give you my truck and you drive it and I'll fix your truck. And when it's done, I give my truck back. And so I let him borrow my truck and I, what the hell? And I, but anyways, I, I just, you know, did it. And, and, uh, we became friends and then the, there was this Dodge truck owners club or some shit. I ended up having this big club meeting at my house. 
I did the first cam swap, uh, what they called an M1 manifold swap at my house with a bunch of dudes watching. Now, hold on. You referenced the guy thinks different than, differently than you in any way. What was he thinking? What was the way he thought that you just couldn't get your head wrapped around? He was a car guy. Okay. And fell in love with the truck for the same reasons I did and was still not totally happy. And he saw my truck and it's, that's awesome. And he wanted to have what I did so he could reproduce it and sell it. But he didn't tell me that. Right. But, we but he needed the magic box. So we become fast friends. Um, websites and, and online marketing was still kind of growing at the time in 2000. Mm -hmm. It's not like it is now. No. Okay. 20 years ago. Yeah. So this guy was pretty savvy. And he found a kid up in Sacramento that knew how to build a website and was into these same trucks. So they build this thing to sell parts, he takes his truck and finds like machine shop said, hey, can you make this? So he starts making all the stuff that I did and selling it. Then he comes by one day with a Hemi, a uh, 2003 Hemi truck. And he's wanting to do a blower. And I figure that out. And anyways, one day he comes into my shop at my office. He, meet, he calls me. He's at your, shop, at your office. I said, yeah. And he comes in and he throws a little passbook down on the table. He goes, check that out. And open it up and there's a huge sum of money in this bank account. I'm like, holy shit, what's this? I'm just kind of like, you know, what are you doing? He's like, look, I'm just going to come clean. I've been making all the shit you made and selling it. And that's how much money I made. Okay, and he goes, you should think about doing this full time. So I, was, I wasn't going to talk about this because it ended badly. But, you know, uh, this was the little window that's missing. I've been dancing around, but I got heavily involved in that. And we had exclusives for North America and the United Arab Emirates to build these wonderful things. Uh, with another entity involved. Mm -hmm. And it was very lucrative. But greed killed it. Not my greed, but greed killed it. And, and I had to recuperate. So, What did you learn from this process? That uh, I really never wanted a partner ever again. Like, really had no interest in doing that. And also, You wanted to control your own destiny, period. Yeah, and, and I still let my guard down a couple times, even with the new shop, you know, and with some of the same players. I, I've let people come back into my life that have let me down. Like, you know, the, the that, ben, you're born with the benefit of the doubt. When you're, when you're first born, you're born with the benefit of the doubt because you haven't screwed anybody. Right. Right? Yeah, there's trust there. You're still, I trust you until you don't, you know. And everybody's given that blessing. It's yours to lose. And I guess some naive thing in my head, I'm still hopeful. Like I just try, I'm hopeful for a world that may never exist, but you know, you lose the benefit of the doubt, but I guess in my head, everybody should also have the right to earn it back. So I've given people the ability to earn it back and I've have rarely been rewarded <laughs> with, with a good outcome.
I think it, it, it's it's back to the with the the scorpion and the frog. Right. And so you, people are who they are. So I think what I've really really learned at this point in my life is that if you know somebody and you know their foibles, their their idiosyncrasies that may affect you adversely, but you still like them, then you need to find a way to let them know you realize that and and just accept it if it's not going to destroy you. But if it's something that's really bad or disconcerting, you got to let it go. Sometimes when you let go of people, the right people, your whole life gets better instantly. They, they hold you back. They suck your energy. You know, I, I talked earlier about when I was younger, I felt like I had all this immense energy. I, I did. Um, for a bunch of different reasons. We all do. Right. You were running on all cylinders, you know, everything's working so well. And, um, but we're not fully formed. So there's this weird place, like I, I find myself in now, where I feel like I understand things better, but man, my guns just don't, sh they're not firing as <laughs> good as they used to, you know? Right, and, not as often as long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, learning to, uh, in business, you, you know, you can't be all things to all men, but especially in business, it's like, um, I, I made a big change at work recently. What was that? With my staff. So when I left the corporate world, I really wanted to disengage from that. I'd been treated badly. And I was the kind of employee, if you let me free, I would do incredible things for you. So I thought, I'm going to do that. I'm going to bring people on and give them immense freedom and let them blossom. I'll guide them. If they have questions, we'll make sure everybody realizes. I ended up with an environment where everybody's trying to eat each other. They, they weren't realizing what I was trying to accomplish because I couldn't convey the concept. They were still trapped in the, well, if I do good, then the boss will love me. Maybe I don't know what the hell's going on. These guys are going to listen to this. Right. Um, but I, I had to sit down the other day, and I had almost done this like last year maybe, but... I finally put together employee handbooks. Did you really? They're done. And I had a meeting on Monday. How did they take it? They're actually really cool about it. They were like, you know what? We're kind of like waiting for this because what I did was create an environment which was like <laughs> um, sometimes not knowing expectation, you know, uh, is an awful thing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I thought they just had an assumption. I thought they would, or I thought they just understood that I trusted them and this is all going to work out. And if you make a mistake, whatever, blah, blah, we'll work it. And if you need to leave, blah, blah, blah. If uh, I gave everybody an immense amount of freedom on all levels, but um, I can operate in that environment. Yeah, it takes, but but not everybody can. Yeah, it takes a special person to be able to do that. So I took a leap of faith. And, and I, uh, I learned from it. And so I just told the guys, look, I'm going to run it this way. And it's, an ex it's probably an experience you guys have all had before because you've worked at other places. But I'm just going to run this like any other business. But you still have freedom mm -hmm. because my door is always open. There will be structure. But there is structure. And I'm starting January 1st. This is the start time. These are the break times. This is lunchtime. This, and these are the rules. 
And it's, it's, you know, and everybody's like, okay, all right. Nobody jumped up and said, this is heresy, you know. Right. How dare you? And that didn't happen. No one threw down their, their rag. I'm out of here. No, I mean, <laughs> and, and the guys are very candid with me. It's because you have some, your, some of your kids work with you I, I, or have worked with you in the past. Yeah, I, I, I have uh, my, two of my sons work with me, and I have uh, guy like Eric. He and I, he's, he's like the first guy that I brought on board, and uh, he's very important, you know, and I've given him everything I know as far, like, as, far as engines are concerned. And... Uh, and and he's been branching out and other stuff more recently because he's he deserves to branch out and have some fun out in the shop and do other things. But I where, where did you see this evolution in your managerial style change or come from? Well, what happened was I had an epiphany that I used to manage. It was my job to manage skilled trades, and uh, f- from experience, skilled trades we're the biggest prima donnas on the planet. You know, we, our egos can run wild in the right environment. And I had to manage not 10, not 20, but sometimes maybe 30 people. Okay. So I told myself, why don't I manage my employees? I know how to do it. I was trying to let them manage and be more autonomous, but- Why did you think that would work in this shop? Because it's a small box and we're, and we're the, the goal- Yeah, your I, team's what, seven? Uh, six? It, it's six to seven, depending. Okay. But I I just thought, it like, well, this is easy. It's We're on the same box. What's the furthest away I am from anybody at any given moment? Right. A hundred feet? Yeah. Val in the other room. If I you mean, guys geez. are all in the shop. Yeah. So communication should be at a high level. You know, mm-hmm. we should be able to understand. No, no. If you're not on the same page, you could be right next to each other. And, and if you're in some unknown, if I don't realize you're, you think you have to compete with this guy over here or, or, uh, or people are worried about, well, that guy did this, but I didn't do that. And I, I come in at this time and that guy comes in this time. Well, I've repeatedly told him it's okay. That's what time he wants to start. And it's just weird how the, the human dynamic starts to, uh, you also think maybe it's a generational thing too. I, I don't know. Cause you do work with a young group. I do work with a young group, right? Yes. Everybody's under 30. Uh, Eric's over 30. Ian's over 30 now. Okay. But it's a young group. Okay. The youngest guy in the group is 22 or 23. Okay. He can barely drink. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> in fact, I don't think he drinks at all. He chooses not to. But but uh, you, run, you run with a young crew. I do. So if you ran with guys who, in their 50s, they might have a different perspective. Well, there's no doubt. They just come from a different place. Right. So... I just thought in the... Uh, but it's a happy crew. I've been there. They're good guys. They're doing the push-ups when they're having fun. Yeah. And pre-COVID, it was happy-go-lucky, good sure, time. Sure, sure. But it is a good thing to have structure and for them to understand, this is what I expect from you. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Boundaries. Well, what I try to do is, look... And you can be free within those boundaries. Yeah. But I have to yeah. give you a reservation. Yeah, I think... So pre-COVID... Pre-fire. Yes. Okay. I, the margins were good enough to where we were, we were getting stuff done at a high level, and it seemed to be, 
I just want to have a fun environment because um, sometimes you crave the things you didn't have when you were younger, maybe. Mm -hmm. And maybe I, I just wanted to do this experiment. Okay. And I'm not, the experiment uh, didn't pan out the way I wanted. Um, and after the fire and after COVID, um, making margins is more difficult. Mm -hmm. Even though we're quite busy, we have a lot of challenges right now. Uh, parts, some parts aren't available right now. And you lost a lot of parts. And I, and I had a stockpile that would have easily seen us through COVID and into the next decade. Right, millennial. You know, and so my whole, the whole world changed so much, like too much. And so... The guys, the guys aren't stupid, and they were there. You know, we rebuilt that shop together. You know, there was a moment when I think they all thought they were going to get fired. And But the meeting, the semicircle, was actually me explaining to them that they're now going to become construction workers <laughs> until we get this place back together. Well, let's talk about the fire so people understand. Yeah. Fire happened when? Uh, a year ago. Uh, was it? It was right. a, a, a Halloween night, 2019. 2019. You get a call. Yes. I get a call wee hours of the morning from Val. Uh, I think there's a fire. Now, why does Val know? Because she's a point of contact. Okay. So that poor girl has to get the call from, you know, the fire department. <laughs> well, actually, it's worse than that. Both of us had our phones off. Oh. So she got up before me just in the middle of the night. Randomly? Uh, maybe to potty break or something. Right, yeah. But her phone had been blowing up. Now, at that time, I had restructured my phone habits and did not keep my phone near my bed at night. Okay. So that I could rest. Yeah. And not annoy Brenda. Because my phone goes off all the time. Right. Vibrating, blowing yeah. off lights, the whole thing. Yeah. So I don't do that anymore. Now the phone's back at, on the nightstand. Yeah. Nightstand. But I. Um, so that poor girl gets the call. Well, well, and Brenda was on East Coast time because her job was a New York job. Uh huh. And she got up and she went in the kitchen to get a glass of water and sees my phone dancing all over and just a line of messages. So I had been contacted by city of Anaheim, my neighbors, uh, the alarm company, the and. And ironic. Well, and when Brenda went out there, Val was actually calling at that moment, so she answered the phone. Right, because Val's not calling at the wee yeah. hours in the morning for the hell of it. And Val was half asleep, and she's like, "I think there's a fire." And she sent me a text, and it was a screenshot of our security cameras that she did to right. send to me. So I get on my security cameras, and I'm like, "You think there's a, there's absolutely a fire?" You know, it's like, "Holy shit!" But the fire is pretty much done. There's a foot of fire retardant foam on the ground. There's firemen everywhere. I jump in my Chevy. I call Tim Roper, who lives fairly close. I said, Tim, uh, there's a, been a fire at the shop. Can you please head down there? I'm on my way, but he's like really close. I said, I just need somebody boots on the ground so I, I got a better picture of things. How long of a drive is that for you? Uh... Normally, half an hour if there's no traffic at all. I got there in like 25 minutes. 
Is it the longest 25 minutes you've had in that? Yep. And I about half, I was about halfway there, and Tim called me. And I take the call uh, on the Bluetooth, and he's like, hey, John, it's it's really bad. I'm like, is uh, From what you can see in your footage of the security cameras, can you only see the auxiliary shop, or can you see the main shop as well? Like, you don't know where the fire's at. I, you just see fire. Well, I, all I had seen was like the out exterior shots, and I looked into the main shop where the service bays uh-huh. are, and I could see like smoke and and debris in the air. But all the lights are off, right? So lights are off. So it's dark anyway. So, so you, it's 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 the uh, like infrared. Uh huh. Right. You know, and I'm like, and I couldn't tell if the flames were coming in or what was going on, but I knew there was debris and smoke getting in through the cracks. Sure. And then outside, I saw firemen everywhere, and I, I, I saw what looked like uh, where they had cut the bay doors. Right. But I didn't know if it was just what had burned. Right. You know, was it just one of the cars? You know, what, what happened? So when Tim called me, I said, how bad is it? He goes, John, it's really bad. I go, well, can we move the cars out? And, you know, he goes, John, it's all gone. I'm like, what do you mean it's all gone? He goes, there's nothing in that building left. It's all gone. It's burned. There's nothing in that building salvageable. How, how big was the square footage in that auxiliary building? Um, a couple thousand square feet, you know, and it's it's super tall. Right, because you had a stacked car in there. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I had I had pallet racks full of parts, and I had the, the machine shop on the far left. Yeah. Bay two was a big four post that was set up to do exhaust work and alignments and stuff and, and you had rows and rows and rows of parts yep it's all gone i mean it, and it was gone when i got there i was like wow so you come around that corner what do you see i mean do you see Every, water and foam everywhere right do you seeing a glow from the distance and are you seeing the firemen on the the lift shooting water down that had already taken place and uh the the real images of everything I was able to review on security cameras. We re- rewound everything. Right. We determined that the fire started next door, that the neighbor's work truck caught on fire just by itself, ignited the rest of the fleet, and then his pellets and shit that were up in some racking next to my building. And, and then caught your building <clears> and <throat> just yep. kind of carried. And it's just a perfect storm with uh, Santa Ana winds blowing 40 miles an hour. Uh, my building is steel. It's listed on my insurance as non-flammable. My building's gone. It's right. been raised. But um, the uh, that was a tough one. And and then what goes through your mind when you walk when you drive up and there's water pouring down the cul-de-sac and trucks and hoses? Are you just well? I was you numb? know I, I've seen a lot of crap in my life, so. Um, I mean, I've seen, I've seen some pretty crazy stuff. And, uh, but this is your stuff now. It's my stuff. And I've, and I've lost things before. Like I said, you know, like when I was a kid, we, we moved a lot. I lost a lot of things. Yeah, but you're an adult now. This is yeah. your business. Uh, yeah, but I, you know, I, uh, I, 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 at first, I, I got to tell you, initially I had a really strong sinking feeling, like really sinking feeling. And I'm like, wow, what am I going to do? And I started to react. But then I, there's, I think I told you about this before. There's something I do that I've taught myself to do. 
I, I try to not overreact because uh, I, I was a hothead for most of my life. And uh, I had to change that. And the only way to do it was to, uh, like when I deal with other people, I observe them and I try to make a decision and help them. Right. It's not that easy to do that to yourself. And I tried to do it and I couldn't do it. And I'm like, well, how can I do that? And I really thought about it and I analyzed it. And I, I watch, it's like I, I step out. I'm not, I, it's hard to explain. I observe myself. Like I actually like, when I feel myself, uh, I've got to the point where when I feel myself ramping up, because mm-hmm. it happens real fast. Sure, right. It, you know, you meet someone or somebody walks up and they say, hey, asshole. And the old John would be like, hey, what are you talking about? And, and you know, it ramps up. Zero to 100, boom. Now it's like, okay, he just called me. You know, I, I just, I don't let myself go to that place. Mm-hmm. I let the guy say whatever the hell they want to say. And then I'm like, okay, uh, how can I help you? You know, because all he's done is air came out of his mouth. Right. It's up to me to make a determination what to do with that air. So you use that trick when this, you're seeing yep. a building on fire? Yep. Yep. I, I, I felt myself, like, losing it, like an emotional response. So uh, I like, okay, I just step back. And I, I, it's like I'm looking at myself. And I don't want to – I'm like, all right, there you are. And there's – it happened already. Mm-hmm. It's like – it's like it's happened. So the best way to deal with it is to step back for a moment and not worry about what you can't deal with. Right. It's so easy, but it wasn't always that easy for me. But this point in my life when the fire happened, I'd already kind of built this ability to do that. So I, you, you can't sweat it. It's done. So the thing you have to sweat and get on is what can I do right now? Like, what can we do? So it took us a while to be able to go near the building because the magnesium was glowing in there. How many days? Uh, it glowed for about 24 hours. And the, the fire department was on standby in case wow. it flared up again. So finally, um, the, the steel building had buckled, and the, the city said it's unsafe. You can't go in there. Duh. It's a buckled building, of course, yeah. yeah. So I very much wanted to go in there. Sure. And I wanted to tear the thing down immediately. But Why? Just to... Just to get moving and, and, okay. st- and start figuring out what we're going to do. Next step. What are we doing? But then all the things you don't know, you start learning about. All the stuff that's you're not aware of, all of a sudden you, you're made aware of because the city says, don't go in there. And then you call the insurance company, and, and they're dragging their feet. And you've got X amount of dollars in the bank. You're like, okay, all right. And I'm thinking, you know, the insurance company's going to do this. No, you have to tell them what you want to do. It's almost like, like if you have a business, you better have some insurance. And now, now that I know what I know, because when I first started Benton Performance, I had a general manager. Mm-hmm. And and a twenty you know like uh, onboard accountant receptionist, okay, right. And I'm thinking I have immense freedom. I can go work on cars, do my thing, work with the guys. And the general manager and the accountant uh, receptionist assistant are gonna keep me out of trouble. Mm-hmm. 
It'll make sure my insurance is taken. It'll pay the bills. No. If you have a small business, and I mean a real small business, two or three employees or uh, maybe 10, your sales, maybe you're less than two, three million a year, it, it does not behoove you to have those people in your life. You need to be Lord and master. Touch everything, know everything. You need to be like Jean-Luc Picard on the Enterprise, man. <laughs> Every nut and bolt, man. You gotta be good old Will Shatner, you know. You, you really have to be in touch with that ship because... Uh, it can get away from you quick? Oh, yeah, because if you are under the assumption that somebody who is not like an invested member of that company, if they're getting a salary or whatever, that if you think they really have your back, you're delusional. Yeah, your name's on it. That's right. You're responsible for all that. Um, if it goes to shit, yep. this receptionist doesn't get called out. Yeah, that's that's correct. They don't lose their house. Right. They don't lose anything. No one remembers the shop manager like screwing it up. Yep. It's John Benton performance that screwed it up. Yeah. So just being totally straight about it, you have to be the master and commander. It, it's think of it as a ship. It's this mighty ship, and you got to make sure that the crew is following your directions, and you have to inspect it and look at it and and trim it here and there and fix it and maintain it. And that's something you are directly responsible for. Now, some of the small things you can't sweat. Now, there are things you can delegate, but delegate the things that aren't going to sink you, you know? Right. Um, I... I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot because I experiment. I like to, you know. What would you tell young John then from that experience? If you could do it all over again, starting in 2005, be like, hey, young John, be aware of this. Oh, well, I, I, I would have, you know, I did seek the advice of really skilled businessmen before I made the big move to Anaheim. Okay. And a good friend of mine, John Beck, and I show, he said, hey, put a business plan together. Let's look at it. I'll help you all I can. And I put it before him, and he told me exactly what I should have done, and I didn't listen. And he was right. He was absolutely right. He says, you don't need this person, and you don't need that. You don't need this, and you should do that. And I'm like, well, I kind of want to do this, and I, I, this will help me to do that. He's like, okay, have at it. And he was right. He was right. His and experience, he knew. Oh, absolutely. He was From a very where you were going to be, you know, your income, your shop of size, your clients and customers, you didn't need those other bells and whistles. Remember earlier when I told you if somebody's willing to give you their time, and mentor you, mm -hmm. you should probably shut your mouth and listen to what they say. That's what you would have told young John? Yep. Shut up and listen to Mr. Beck? Yep. Because that worked for me for a long, long time, but then I became self-aware. Mm -hmm. That's another thing. Right. Self-awareness is a big deal. And I think a lot of people may live their whole lives and never experience that. And I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but you... Because it happened to me. I know it happened to me. I remember becoming self-aware. And it's, and it's kind of when I decided to, like, it wasn't a nervous breakdown at that table. 
it was self-awareness. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm better than this. I'm greater than this. Why, why am I letting all my, my future is, why is it in the hands of these people? I'm, I'm taking control right now. And I did. Now, don't get me wrong. i I have no delusions about having control. <laughs> you, you know, you just prepare the best you can. Right. You know, and to me, good luck is just being prepared for when an opportunity comes along. That's really good luck. You know, if, if good luck could be right in front of you, but you're too stupid to reach out and grab it, that's, you know, it's sad. Right. But, um, you know, I, I, uh, I, you know, but I've done good and, and I'm, I'm feel pretty good about where we're at. I mean, I, we're, we're producing beautiful things against all odds. You know, we, we had that fire and I was very creative with the way I used the insurance and the community stepped up in a big way. I had some clients do a GoFundMe, which I did not want to do. It felt like the biggest failure ever. But when friends that I trusted came to me and said, John, you need to do this because they looked at my books. They looked at what the insurance company was doing for business interruption right. versus how we're going to open the shop again. And, and my pockets were empty. I, I spent it all after the fire. You know, I maxed everything out trying to make sure everybody got paid, pay the bills. I never defaulted on a thing, anything. And That's so, great. um, how did, how did you manage the team after that fire? Well, they all sit around and probably think, oh, my God, we're all unemployed. That's kind of what happened, and uh, I could feel the tension. Sure, you got young kids who are just like, oh, God. Oh, yeah. yeah, and so I went out one day, and I said, everybody bring it in. And I could see the – I could feel it. You know, they're right. like, oh, man. I was He's like, going to let us all like, go. And I'm like, okay, hey, here's the deal. I'm, you're not getting fired. Because, you know, I'm yeah. only interrupting you because – they're 25 years old, 27 years old, and they're looking at you going, I'm just putting words into their mouth, but he's going to retire. He's going to call it right now. He's going to close this yep. thing up, walk away. He's going to take whatever insurance money he's got. He's going to be like, screw it. I'm good. That was the easy way out. Right. I, I'm, if I'm 25, that's what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, John, this, this broke his heart and he's walking away. I could have went that route. Sure. And I wouldn't have faulted you. No, I, I would be better off <laughs> in so many ways had I done that. But you did. You rallied the troops. I did. I, I told them, I said, look, you guys, uh, I said, don't freak out. Because a couple of them were just looking at the floor. Oh, I'm, like, I'm sure. And I'm like, you guys, cheer, Try not to cry. cheer up. Listen, we're going to, you're not fired. I said, you're all going to become construction workers. And I'm going to show you how to do stuff. And as long as you are in... I'm cool. If anybody wants to leave right now, I won't hold it against you. This, this is, there's unknown territory, and there's no guarantee we're going to pull through this. But the only chance we have is to really be efficient and spend what money we have left in the best possible ways. Or we're sunk. So are you, who's, is anybody, everybody's, everybody's like, oh, no, no, we're, we're good. We're, we're, let's do it. So... We couldn't work on cars. There was no way, you know, because the insurance company was like, well, you still have the bays. And they were, they were under the assumption that we were still able to do business. I'm like, no, you don't understand. These are cars in here and these are bays. 
but all the parts and some of the engines and shit that went with these cars, it's all burned up. Right. And the machine shop is gone. The parts are gone. This was a symbiotic deal. Yeah. These two buildings bounce off each other. I said, and I explained to the insurance company because they, what they wanted to give me was like not cool. And, uh, but the long and the short of it is all those dudes learned how to do a lot of neat shit that they never done before. <laughs> you know, they're out there framing and nailing stuff together and cutting stuff cutting and, and painting and patching and, and, uh, it, it was really cool to watch the team work together, you know? And so at the end of it, we have what is Benton Performance today. And I can't take full credit for it. All I did was steer the boat, okay? But the guys, we were all hands on deck and really pushing hard. And, uh, I mean, it was uh, nasty. We all looked like coal miners. Yeah. Yeah. We were filthy for weeks and weeks. And we, we would clean the shit out of it. And then the next door neighbor who wasn't as focused as us <laughs> would just track all this carbon and shit all through the car. Because we share the space. Yeah, that driveway you share. And, and uh, you know, I had to go over there and kind of say, hey, you guys, you know, what the hell? You're tracking dirt through my house. You know, we're building beautiful things over here. You guys are cutting stone. It's beautiful. But... Come on, please stop. Or we'll help you, whatever you need, we're here. And, um, but we, we took care of business and we reopened, uh, let's see, uh, like f four months. Yeah, right, April. We opened in March. Was it March? Okay. So, but we, we managed to rebuild and reopen in record time. I made a deal with the insurance company because I had, I had business interruption for good for like a million bucks. And I told the insurance company, look, if you work with me, you're, we're never going to spend a million bucks. You know, if you guys want to drag and slog it out, I'm going to use up every bit of the million bucks. But if you work with me, we do this for three, 500, I don't know. But if you help me, we can survive this together with the least amount of cost. Now, as far as what I lost, that's a whole other deal. Right. The, all the customers were taken care of, the, the, the people in the building were taken care of, uh, business interruption, payroll, all that got taken care of. But a lot of the equipment, the way the insurance works, insurance is a wicked thing. You, you really, if you have insurance, you may not have insurance. You... I recommend everyone in business today, tomorrow, get their policy out and really, really look at it. Go over it. Make sure. And make their broker do their job. You know, part of the reason my coverage was screwed up was because I depended on some employees to take. I thought, you know, it's just a mundane task. Right. You know, get the insurance, pay the bill. Um, at the old shop, the broker sent somebody down. They looked at the property, made suggestions, and I had really good coverage nobody ever came out to the new shop really and I was getting ready to race in Mexico and I was really super busy and I kept sending emails hey you guys gotta take care of this and then I made an assumption it was all taken care of they never transferred the, the my property insurance like tangible mm -hmm. property like those parts 
that insurance, because I still have a unit in La Habra where the old shop was. Right. I still have that little shop storage area over there, which has to be insured. They never moved the bulk of that insurance over to Anaheim. Ouch. So that was painful. So, and uh, because I wasn't like analyzing every little nut and bolt of my ship, I learned the hard way. So I did the best of what we had. Uh, the GoFundMe was like $55,000 like uh, from the community at large. You That's know? unbelievable. Um, when we got back on my feet, when we got back on our feet, I had, we had some stuff made up as thank you gifts that we sent out to people who had contributed. Um, but I am forever thankful to all those people and forever thankful to the crew that stuck by us and stuck by the shop and, and helped and, and other people that came by to help, you know, people volunteered to come help sweep and clean right. and stuff, which was amazing. How is it working in the shop with your kids? Well, that's a difficult thing. Um, it's getting better now. Um, so um, what happens... you're not dad at work. Well, that's the thing, and I realize that. But what happened uh, with the with the, the boys is that uh, it's, it's getting better now, but um, it's, a, it's a dynamic that can be stressful because if I get upset, they don't take it as an employee. They take it as a son. So I've just, they've disappointed their dad. And I've, I've had to very recently like, talk to my youngest and say, hey, when I come at you here at the shop and I say, God damn it, you need to be here on time or you need to weld that correctly or undo that. It's not a personal attack. Right. It's, it's employee number it, one. Not, yep. yep. It, yeah. You're just a dude. And I have an expectation. I'm trying to convey that. So don't take it as we're in the backyard. It's Thanksgiving. <laughs> right. And I'm telling right. you, hey, you, how dare you eat your turkey like that? You know, yeah. it's not, we're not. It's not no. that. <laughs> <laughs> it's we've got to get a job done. This is what bosses do to employees. Mm-hmm. That's all. And it takes a lot of work to get through that. A lot of work. It's a lot. And there's dynamics at play. Like, you know, I... Well, yeah, then it becomes favoritism. John doesn't ever yell at him. Yep, yep. Or, he, you know... But I got to tell you right well, now... he doesn't yell at that employee and it's two no, brothers. But, but or, I'll tell you right now, the guys at my shop know that I don't pull punches with the boys. Like, if I... If I chew some ass, you're chewing some I'm ass. I'm chewing some ass. Right. And, and sometimes I'll chew their ass harder. Sure. Which then is another dynamic. Yep. They're, you're only chewing my ass harder because I'm your son. Exactly. So it's a catch-22. <laughs> catch and, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting dynamic. But you know what? It's also a blessing. And uh, sometimes, you know, I, uh, I often tell people I love them. I do it a lot. I might tell you that sometimes after a phone call and uh, not that we're, it's something I remind people of that I do care about them. Right. And, uh, and I do care about my employees and I do. It shows. You know, I, I, I know that a lot of, uh, I went through all the management training. I've been to all the seminars, the specialized training. And so you did take some of that stuff and educate yourself. But a lot of the tenets of those training seminars are never call your staff family. Never refer to, do not, never have this personal level. You know what? I, I am still going to keep that in my 
deal because um, this isn't the kind of business where annually you look at the staff and cut the 10% of the low performers. Right. I hate that. I mean, you got to do what you got to do in business, but I'd rather maybe because it takes X amount of people to get the revenue to the right place to keep mm -hmm. all the gears turning. Um, this is different. So like I told the team on Monday, I said, look, I like this team. I have faith in this team. I just need us to get all the oars in the water going the same direction. Because right now, that's not where we're at. Right. And I tried the other way, thinking we're, we can spin around in this little circle here and we'll be fine. But it's really a sphere that we have to navigate and, and we have to figure that out. We have to... What's your expectations like by February or March for them to pull in the same direction with your new, I don't want to say guidelines, but new expectations? Well, uh, you know, it's all it is is, look, I, and I'll, I was very frank with them. I said, look, we're, and I'm going to have meetings with them mm -hmm. leading up. Periodicals. Yeah. And so, but basically there's a now a, a employee handbook. I'm going to go over with them one more time. Okay. They're all going to sign a sheet. It says they have the book and they read it. Covers your button theirs. And that's the rule book. So in the event there's a situation, I don't have to explain it to them, but I can explain to them why I'm making the decision because I really thought about this document. It's tailored to our shop. These are the rules. You break the rules and you get a warning. And if you can't rise above that, then we need to separate our relationship because it's not fair to – you talk, want to talk about fairness? You want to talk about, you know, he said, she said, no, no, no. This has – that all goes out the window today because this document spells it all out. This is how a company works. Right. I've done it before. I did it a million times. I, I made this document, you know, with the help of – ADP and Val, you know, we figured it out, you know. <laughs> How do you keep yourself uh, out of a rut? Because, I mean, you're, you're in a shop all day. Mm -hmm. Like, what, what keeps you out of a rut? Well, I have, I have things to occupy my mind. Uh, uh, you have to have some downtime. And that doesn't mean laying around in a bed or getting shit-faced, you know, in the backyard, which... Uh, I'm not a really a good lay around in the bed kind of guy, but I might get shit faced in the swing in the backyard. Um, but you know, Brenda and I have a good relationship now. We've had our trials and tribulations, like uh, every marriage. Oh, sure. Oh yeah. I mean, we've we've been right there at the precipice. Um, but now, uh, you know, we actually enjoy each other's company. It's it's a big deal. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many guys I know that they sleep in a different bedroom at night. Uh huh. Uh, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Maybe it's just because she snores or something. I, I right. don't know. But uh, Brent and I snore together, and we do everything together. Um, in the middle of all the f <laughs> the fire and the, and all this crazy stuff going on, a, a Unimog fell into my lap. Right. Yeah. Just out of the sky. I mean, just something I had seen years prior, and I'm broke as hell. And this guy calls me up because I left a note. And out of the blue, during all this craziness, hey, uh, you still want these trucks? You got to get them the hell out of here. 
So there were two of them. So I basically sold one for the price of both while I was making the deal with this guy. Literally like texting on the phone while I'm talking to this guy, you know, and, and parlayed one to get possession of the other. So I kept one. The other one actually belongs to a guy next door to me. Um, and Brenda and I made that our project together. Husband and wife, we worked on that Unimog for 10 straight weeks. And That's a commitment. Yeah. And uh, because when we had our grand opening, it wasn't running. No. But, but I had gotten the sound system to work. Of course you got the sound system to so, work. Because it, it's, it's a long story, but this thing was a promotional tool that for uh -huh. Lil John the rapper. Yeah. Some of the stuff was still there, and I brought it back to life. It's hilarious. And I've kept most of that stuff in there. It's pretty funny. But uh, Brendan and I spent every weekend, because COVID happened, and she's not an essential worker or anything. But uh, it, So anyways, it, it's just a situation where let's just work on the Unimog. And then she got it in her head, well, our 33rd wedding anniversary is June 13th. Let's get it running by then, because I want to go camping in the Unimog for our anniversary. <laughs> what a woman. That's great. So we did it. We literally got that thing running, and, and I felt confident. And we jumped in that thing, drove across Los Angeles. And ironically, that's when the protests were happening, pretty heavy. <laughs> and you're in this, like, giant assault vehicle-looking yeah. vehicle. so I just thought it would be hilarious to— <laughs> drive the Unimog through L.A. and Hollywood and then loop back around to La Cunada and then go over Angeles, the ACH, into Palmdale and then out into the Mojave, which is what we did. Just found a spot and yeah. made camp? Yeah. And we had a blast. We That's awesome. Absolute blast. You know, and I think the top speed reached during the whole entire trip was 60 miles an hour downhill. <laughs> We were on ACH going 20 miles an hour up grades, and people were like, oh, man. They, and I would get out of the way as soon as we get a turnout. Um, but there were times when, man, I'm sorry, guys, but we're going up this hill. It's you, a beast. Oh. It's, it goes everywhere, but slow, you know. And, uh, but that was, our, that was one thing. And then I have my motorcycles. I have uh, my drum kit okay. set up in the garage. I got a 1978 Premier. Drum kit all set the way I like it. Um, uh, you know, these aren't selfish endeavors, but they're just things I enjoy. Yeah, and that's what you need. Yeah, and, and they're not frivolous in any way. I mean, it's nothing that's, I mean, you don't have to be rich or anything to have right. some of this stuff. Um, you know, it's just dedication to the task or the whatever. Like, I'm not an, uh, the ultimate drummer. I'm not. I know that. But I love... Beating on that thing. Oh, man, it's so much fun. And I I recently... Uh, I've got a... Ian won a promotional guitar from the Snap-on truck. It's a, a little Fender uh, <laughs> guitar, you know, an electric guitar. And I bought an iRig that plugs into my iPhone and has a jack for the guitar and put on headphones. And you, you have an app. And I can pick any pedal set, any amp ever made and simulate the sound. <laughs> That's and, great. And just sit there and jam. And Brenda's reading a book. And <laughs> there's some <laughs> stupid program on the TV. I don't even know what it is. And 
I got the headphone. I can't hear anything but the guitar, and I'm just, you know, just making noises and having a good time, and you know, trying to get get that kind of to work again. And so, uh, and if we didn't have all that, there's still something to do. I mean, right? You know, on on any given weekend night, uh, I have a fire pit in the backyard. I got my outdoor outdoor kitchen that I built. It's very simple, but it's permanent. And we have a little patio, and we have a swing. Brendan and I built the swing out of oak. You know, we built it together, and uh, and we like to sit on our swing, and have a rum and coke, and watch the fire. And she'll be playing Animal Crossing, and <laughs> I'll be playing solitaire, and it's heaven. It's perfect. It's perfect. What's the future hold for uh, Benton performance? Well, ultimately. Um, as a legacy shop, which is kind of what I share with the guys, I, I often tell them, look, I'm not going to do this forever. You know, I, at some point, life is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And whether that means I retire or I expire, the whole idea is to make this place bigger than ourselves. Uh, make it to where it, it's set up and it just works. And we do have a good system. We have a very good system for tracking time and parts and all that good stuff. That's just the, the, the serious business stuff, right? Right. And, and now I'm creating another possibility by organizing it on a more professional level as far as how to manage egos and personalities and behaviors, right? So that's – but the, what the future holds is unknown. Um, what I, my hope is is that um, – the guys in the shop, because they are young, will continue to learn. I've got a good 10, 15 years left in me. Um, keep transferring that. And the other, the other really cool thing, Matt, is that I teach them what I know. Mm -hmm. But what's really rewarding is when they mix what I teach them with their own discoveries. You know, sometimes they're like, oh, I figured out a way to do it. I'm like, hey, that's, that's pretty awesome. Do that, <laughs> you know. So that's very rewarding, not just for me, but for them and the shop. Sure. And uh, there's a few things that are on hold. You know, I love education, and oftentimes people that work at the shop, under normal times, they'd be over at Cal State Fullerton, or Fullerton Community College, or Cerritos, because I'm like, hey, you need to take this class. Now I can't do that right now, but as soon as we get through this mess, um, I will continue that process. And I hope to continue sponsoring young men, whether they stay with the company or not, mm -hmm. uh, to give them the experience that is afforded at in this box, this place called Benton Performance. So, you know, if, if the someday they say you can't have internal combustion, but you can have a chassis with electric motor in it, then that's maybe that's what we'll do. Um, if they say that uh, you can have internal combustion engines, but it's really expensive and you're gonna pay, you got to pay this tax and this fee, um, it still means it will be around because something should be noted here. There are not a lot of people that do what we do. Yeah, no. It seems like there is because we're in California. Right. But in the world, there's not a lot of these cars. And there's far fewer people to make them live and keep them at a high state 
of uh, finish. So um, this is a leap of faith. This is a passion-driven business. If I wanted to make a bunch of money, I would do manufacturing or something. I would figure out a way to do my own version of Make America Great Again. Mm -hmm. Okay? And I would get the same kind of people and show them how to make things. But I thought it would just be fun to shift gears after doing that for all those decades to focus on this little craft and teach young men the difference between, you know, this bolt and this washer and the the rules of fastening things and the rules of non-marring it with a tool and how to drill a hole and simple little things and then work up to this is how you weld and this is how you this is how you grind this is how you sweep you'd be surprised how many kids don't know how to sweep or mop oh god yeah because um, they've never done it at home so they don't surely don't know how to do it in a yeah, shop but my guys know how to mop you know you know it's it's not a mundane task it's part of the mix Mm-hmm. You know, one of the hard things early on was, uh, um, especially with my son Ian, uh, because of stupidity in the shop, um, denigration, you know, making people feel less because of the job they do. Right. That's the most horrific thing. I don't want that in my shop. It existed in my shop. But like, let's just say the... So well, how did that happen? How did it creep in? Uh, it's, it was kind of insidious, man. I, I, uh, it was, I don't know. I don't know if it was a, it was just a lot of, you know, psychological wealth warfare. Yeah. <laughs> it's alive and well, man. People, people can be really mean to each other, but I think early on, it's like, I like to push people's buttons. Yeah. And that, it probably boils down to that. Cause if, if people recognize how to push people's buttons, yeah, it's how far like, can I push Mike's oh, buttons? I do chassis work. You, you do, you do uh, coach work. Right. You know, I could train a monkey to do that. Yeah. And the reality is one of the most important things we do at my shop is coach work. The ability to assemble a car. Make sure that everything's straight and in the right place. And, you know, the stitching's lined up and the dash is on there right and all the gauges are in line. Not everybody does that well. So getting somebody to do all that coach work is really important. So what does that take? Attention to detail? Absolutely. But see, the thing I, I when I had the meeting on Monday with all the guys, I said, there's no job here important another job. Whether you're sweeping or building an engine, those are all equally important. There's a way to do them, and you should do them the best way you can. You know? And uh but to say it's like um you know when I, when I was in uh the corporate world we gave one of the highest awards you could get with the gold pen and a paid vacation to a janitor. And he deserved it. Now, I know what, the ch- I know what everybody made, and I know that janitor didn't make a ton of money, but he, he, you know, he was treated well. He made good salary. He had benefits like everybody else. But, you know, he's a janitor. He was a he was a dedicated, he kept that place awesome. But over the period he had been there, which was well before my tenure, he had never missed a day in 30 years. Wow. He never was late, never sick. 
I mean, he never, ever took anything other than his salary. Now, I'm sure he had been sick. I'm sure he had bad days. But he always greeted you with a smile. He always came to work excited. He took care of his equipment. He took care of his closet, which is a bit bigger than a closet. It's a big facility. But that place was awesome. And there were other people that could have maybe gotten that award. But there was nobody that exemplified a fully dedicated person. Like he did. Yeah. You know, and this guy, sweet man, been married to the same woman for a million years, put four kids through college, you know. And there were guys that worked at that shop, skilled trade dudes that were making five times more money, had been married three times. Life, their lives were a freaking mess. They're late all the time. Right. They always got some problems, some drama going on. And I'm like, wow. So is happiness from the money? No. Obviously. Yeah. Is, is happiness from the high position, you know, lead electrician, you know? Nope. Apparently not. Because their happiness was, as far as you could tell, was non-existent. So, you know, I'm, I'm only bringing this up because well, you know, I've seen all kinds of people do all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. But I've also seen people live very productive, fun, fulfilling lives just by deciding to be happy. Because that gentleman's attitude was his ace in the hole. So you, you can... Learn from that. I learned, I learned from little things like sure. that. Sure. Those so, are big. So earlier when I told you about, you know, you're being dipped, you know, or you're in the firing squad, yeah. I, you know, sometimes you just got to smile and say, okay, it's just the way it is. Let's move on. And, and don't go to the reactive mode. Try to suppress that. Confront, but don't react. You, right. ha- you can't be passive and successful. <laughs> no. But... But you can confront without overreacting. Yeah. You know, you have this p- portrait of Bruce Lee here, right? Yeah. If he was alive today, you know, he would express something like that, that a calm warrior is more successful than an upset, out of control. Oh, absolutely. Warrior, you know. You know, you shoulder your weapon, take aim, and boom. Or you spray and pray, you know. Right. Which guy do you want to be? <laughs> You know, waste a bunch of ammo, make a mess. Or you want to shoot that bird with one shot. Well, I've done that, yes. Yeah. All right, and one word, one word. Give me one word for a 912. Hmm. hmm. That's not fair, Matt. Life's not fair. Yeah, yeah, that's a true statement. <laughs> Um, I should put that on a bumper sticker. That's true. Which I'm sure it exists. <laughs> I have nuke the gay whales for Jesus on my bumper sticker, but let's see here. One word. Well, for me, I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to say passion. That's the word. Because it's, it's, it's a very, very, powerful force in my life and it's been an absolute uh accelerant 
as far as my passion is concerned. And it, it still puts a smile on my face every time I see it. And it drives me. I mean, I, it, it was the seed and the kernel of everything I have, with the exception of my personal relationships. But passion. That's a good one. John, I cannot thank you enough for spending the time with me and talking about your business, your personal life, career decisions, choices, family, dropping knowledge. It's been a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. I'll take your word for it, man. Oh, trust me. The tacos weren't bad. The tacos weren't bad. <laughs> for those who don't know, we had a little break in between and had some Wahoos. <laughs> and if Wahoos would like to uh, do a sponsorship on just a good conversation, please get in touch with me. But I'm serious. I cannot thank you enough. It yes. was an absolute pleasure. You got a great shop. From everybody in there. Love going there. I appreciate that. And I this was very cathartic. And uh, the cheapest therapy I think anyone has ever had. <laughs> there was no therapy here. It was just, just two guys talking about good times. Just a good conversation, just right? Just a good conversation with John Benton. Right on, man. Thank you, man. Salute. All right. This is Matt Brown, and you listen to Just a Good Conversation. Please hit the subscribe button as well as the like button.